Hi, I'm Lou Diamond Phillips, and you're listening to Pod Clubhouse. Pod Clubhouse. I mean, anyone can be a murderer. Wrong place, wrong time, an accident, an impulse. Oh, God, Malcolm, what happened? But there's another type of killer. For them, murder is an addiction, a bad love they can't quit. Truth is, anyone can do it once. But the second kill, that's when the switch is flipped and a serial killer is born. Welcome to The Surgeon Files, your unofficially official Prodigal Son podcast. I'm Mike Caputo. And I'm Sheila McGann. Tonight we're discussing episode seven of season two, the winter finale. It was called Face Value. Face Value was written by Lori Hart Marger and was directed by a familiar face to the Prodigal Son crowd, one Lou Diamond Phillips. Woo! Wah, wah, wah. Lou Diamond Phillips! Wah, wah, wah. Lori actually has several writing and story editor credits for the show, but specifically she wrote Pied a Terre, which is one of my favorite episodes from season one. And on the director side, this was Lou Diamond Phillips' first Prodigal Son episode that he was tapped to direct. But you can hear more about Lou's experience straight from his own mouth in our exclusive interview with him, which is coming at the end of our episode discussion. Tonight, an exclusive interview with Lou Diamond Phillips. It was amazing. Oh, my God. Getting to interview Lou is just a dream come true. Like, little nine-year-old Sheila, who loved the Bamba, was just delighted to have this experience. But before we get started, you should also check out the Prodigal Son playlist that we have over on Spotify. It's called The Surgeon Files, same as this podcast. And it's a little bit of mood music to help you along as you wait the days, weeks, maybe months in between the episodes here. Talk about a double-edged sword. A winter finale which tonight was, is great because it sets up cliffhangers. It probably points us in directions that the back half of the season's going to go. But it also means that at the end of this episode, when it fades to credits, it means we're not going to see another Prodigal Son until probably April. Oh, my Lord. What am I going to do? So, and and in a shortened season, like tonight, tonight's not only the winter finale, but it also does represent the halfway point of the season. I I mean, I can't believe we have to wait a month for the next episode. I can't believe that by the time, like, Memorial Day rolls around, the Prodigal Sun season will be, like, over. That's super depressing to me. Give me more murder, people. Damn you, COVID. (laughs) Damn you, straight to hell. So we had new faces galore this episode. We had Catherine Zeta-Jones joining the cast now as a series regular as Dr. Vivian Capshaw. Hubba, hubba, hubba. Yeah, she's just got it still, no matter what. She's just got it. I mean, I think I feel like the older she gets, the more she, she like, really taps into that Catherine Hepburn. Uh, is it Catherine Hepburn I'm thinking of? Or Kathleen Turner? Maybe I'm thinking of Kathleen Turner. Kathleen Turner is a lovely woman, but I do not find her sexy anymore. No, but I'm thinking like the husky voice. The husky voice. Oh, yes. The husky voice. Yes. It's a a real throwback. It's a real golden age of Hollywood husky voice sexiness about her. You know, like she was raised on razor blades in her throat and cigarettes. But it's all (laughs) to our benefit kind of thing, you know? Oh, absolutely. Uh, especially, yeah, from 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 Jump Tonight, she she's hello. Is that Whitley? 
<laughs> and then we also had Alan Cumming joining the cast, beginning his guest starring stint as Europol investigator Simon Hoxley. And we had Rachel York as Bernie Milton. Let's talk about Rachel York as Bernie Milton, because she is a fantastic Broadway actress. Uh, she is she is uh, she has been around. She has done it and she has been there. But as far as casting goes, I don't know that they could have picked just a as a physical specimen, someone with the mannerism, someone with the right cadence and the ability to nail that Milton old money joie de vivre, you know, mm-hmm. and she, she, she is the perfect casting to play Bellamy Young's younger sister. Genius to cast her, and I hope we get to see more of her. In my notes, I actually said, what a perfect extension of Bellamy's personality really Jessica's personality in this in this show. Just like the there was like the little jowl grab when uh, they're greeting each other. It's just such a, a like an old money like you know, you haven't had your work done yet kind of a thing, but it was just such a perfect extension. I just loved her as a as a as a casting pick. Yeah, there's a real upper east side this about the Miltons. Uh that that old money, uh everything is said with a bit of sarcasm and shade thrown in on it. Even when it's it, even when it's on its face, it's a compliment. There's a dagger hidden inside it. You know, every every bunt cake comes with a razor blade hidden inside it, kind of <laughs> so kind of like uh way of speaking and and birdie milton really nails that you know nails that perfectly and jessica does too all the time it's just that we've we've been uh stockholm syndromed into loving jessica and her and her indelicate ways of speaking to people uh so birdie was this like uh this breath of dank air come <laughs> come into our life but in a wonderful way yeah, like Jessica's not used to having those like dagger blades, you know, turned back on her. So exactly, exactly. Um, Let, let's back up though. Let's talk about Alan Cumming and Simon Huxley first. What what's your? Do you know Alan Cumming? Do you know him from Broadway? Do you know him from TV, where he's made a name in both places? Uh, and, and also, what did you think of Simon Huxley? Because he really is tagged here at the end, so he doesn't really fit in the episode other than he's almost like the Marvel, you know, post credits teaser is kind of how that gets added on here at the end of the episode. So let's let's be rebels and talk about at the beginning of the episode yeah so uh to answer part one of your question i know him from c all of the above you know i know him from broadway i know him from movies from tv just everything that he's done all the way back to like goldeneye like back in the 90s that's kind of where i just like discovered him and and I just followed him because they just find him such a be like a dynamic actor and him being brought in as simon hoxley is just so wonderful because he's just deliciously like malevolent like he's just very i don't know he's dishing on on his find like it's like proving his theory and he's just he is just here for it and he's like now i get to go to new york city so it's it's almost like capping off exactly what he thought like the the chess pieces that he had lined up so i really enjoy him now as as an addition to this cast i have a horrible prediction for what's going to happen to him I don't know if you want to hear it, but I, I, well, no, yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I think I think I know where you're going to go from it here. I mean, the episode ends with him making a very Poirot announcement. You know, all he's missing is the facial hair of of a Poirot from like an Agatha Christie novel right. or or Kenneth Braga if you're into the the movie in Murder on the Orient Express. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I mean, he's, you know, this is Endicott, and he was murdered in New York, and I'm going there, whoa, whoa, whoa. you know, and it was kind of like that, and, and I mean, just this larger-than-life kind of personality, yeah. he is going to shake some shit up when he gets here, when he lands uh, here in America. I- I'm here for it, but I, I I fear to hear where you're going, but lay us on. What's your theory about what ha- happens to Simon Huxley? 
Ainsley does them in. That's it. That's you're, you're you're putting the money down. You're calling your Vegas bookie. And you're I'm saying, doubling down on Ainsley killing Simon. Oh man, I hope I, I I hope not because I just love Alan Cumming so much. So I go back to the 1998 Cabaret revival yes. of uh, the 1998 revival of Cabaret on Broadway at Studio 54. I saw this. Uh, with a date, I had seats at the stage. So if 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 you don't know, when when Cabaret reopened in in uh, 1998 at, at the Fame Studio 54, the place that, you know where disco lived and died, the entire front area, what would be like the pit area or the orchestra area of a traditional theater, was pulled out and was replaced by high cocktail tables, like high high top cocktail tables with like little candles. And it was it was very cute and it was meant to recreate the Kit Kat Club. Uh, I I was sitting at the table closest to the stage and Alan Cumming was the MC during the revival. So I got to see him. Like I his sweat was upon me throughout the show. It was it was one of the best Broadway experiences I ever had and I've been to a lot of Broadway shows. Uh, it remains you know, a top moment of my theater going life, even though it was 23 years ago or so. But that's where I first saw him and kind of fell in love with everything he can do. You experienced him. That's where I first experienced him. And I've kind of kept my eye out for wherever he pops up, whether it's on TV or, or movies or, or on stage. I kind of always try and go out of my way to see him because he is this larger than life character. He's the epitome of the guy who can make reading or singing the uh, phone book interesting and and worth listening to. Very, very excited. I I mean, don't tell Catherine this, but I was actually more excited about him being cast in the show than I was about her being cast oh, in the show. Okay. That's that's how deep my love and fandom for Alan Cumming goes. All so right, I'll keep this go. between us then. All right. Someone is going to kill him uh, because, <laughs> the, you know, the Whitleys are good at murder, right? That, that you know, and yeah, it was confirmed here, right? So they're not going to let that stand. The idea that they got away with it. You have Martin, you know, a Claremont. You have his new bestie, Capshaw, who who is like a smitten kitten, it seems, with them, you know, with him. Uh, then you have Malcolm and you have Ainsley and God knows what Mama Bear Jessica would do to protect her family. So, I, I you know, who knows? But there's going to be a lot of knives out coming for Simon Huxley once he steps foot upon the shore. Yeah. So, yeah, I... I Beware. The actuaries are going to lose money on his life insurance policy i'm pretty sure for sure i you know we didn't get a really a lot of him though i mean it was nice to see estonia and this was interesting because this went back to a point that you and i first talked about way back in episode one of season two how much of the endicott murder would we end up seeing we even specifically talked about would we ever go to estonia would we ever go right. to lake paper we, we talked about that and we both said well you know we probably won't go to estonia but we suspected that we would learn about more about the murder and what happened afterwards. Right, like it wasn't done yet. Yeah, right. We were going to learn more about it as the season went on. Here we are, the winter's, you know, episode seven, mid- midway point of the season, and we're we're in Estonia. So, you know, the show never does things accidentally. The show is really good about not dropping threads. And tonight was the payoff that a lot of people have probably been waiting for. And, and what a genius way to bring in this guest star for a guest star arc. Other, mm-hmm. you know, starting in Estonia and then coming across to America. And just enough to, like, get a, a taste of him, but not enough to know anything really more about him. A nice little tease. Right. A perfect tease. A perfect tease. Enough to know, right? He's he's larger than life. He thinks, you know, he's, he's in a Pink Panther movie. I was going to say Invincible. 
But, you know, that's a throwback to Goldeneye. <laughs> there you go. And, and, and yeah, and he's going to stir some shit up, though. And I think that's the one thing that we could definitely count on. This is a, this is a heavyweight. This is another casting titan that the show has landed a coup. He's not going to be a wallflower. He's, he's going to get in there and mix stuff up with Malcolm and Gil and, and Danny and JT and, and Ainsley and everyone. So it's going to oh, be interesting. Oh, I could just see, see him just, up. like, irritating the pants off of Gil. Like, just seriously, just hackles raised. <laughs> Another general thing about this episode, there were a couple of hat tips to movies in this episode. One stood out to me. There was definitely, for me, a, a real Pulp Fiction vibe in the Danny Malcolm revive uh, Chabra scene. Uh, what what movie tip-offs did you have tonight? Well, I had face-off. I mean, that, that was the obvious one with the, the plastic surgeon trying to rearrange his face to escape persecution or he was just on the lamb and then i also got the princess bride believe it or not when um malcolm at the end when he's you know with lana and he figures her out and he says you know the best revenge is to leave him like this i was getting a very much a very much of like a, a prince humperdinck to the pain kind of a, a vibe from that scene humperdinck 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 nah nah you're a witch i'm not a witch i'm your wife no i always skip over to the pain because i'm always still stuck on uh there's a shortage of perfect breasts in the world it would be a shame to ruin yours so yeah to the pain that means i leave your perfect ears I, no, I didn't catch it. That's a, that's a great little pickup. But the the Pulp Fiction jabbing the the Coke instead of adrenaline straight into the heart and then waiting is an iconic scene for Pulp Fiction. And the only thing missing from it was them drawing like a big circle over his uh, his his, his rib heart, over yeah. his, his over his heart and talking about how it has to pierce through the ribcage and stuff. So, but that payoff was just perfect. So. It really was. I mean, that it was a great, it was a great scene between Danny and Malcolm. It was them at their frenetic best. Danny is always entertaining when she comes up to Malcolm's intensity and and frenetic and chaotic level. How could you not? I mean, she's going along with this, where basically the working theory is he was going to die anyway, so we can't kill him twice. And she was like, "Okay, <laughs> yeah, we're, we're going to do no harm. He's dying anyway." Right, exactly, exactly. <laughs> Daily affirmations were back for I think, and count me if I'm wrong, or tell me if I'm wrong, but I think this was only the second time this season. But we did have a daily affirmation today. I think you're right. I think it's only the second time. Hey, guys, today could be the day. Indeed. And and in fact, in a lot of ways, today was the day for Malcolm and for Ainsley and for and for other people, too. Uh, for Martin? Hello. This was definitely his day. Oh, for sure. For sure. Martin had a great day. I mean, not a lot of people can come out of a Prodigal Son episode saying they had a great day. That is not a common refrain on this show. Martin had a really great day today. Yeah, he did. So we had some murder weapons here. So, you know, we do our murder weapons tally. What did you see as a murder weapon here today? So they kept calling it the Radiant Solution, which didn't really make sense to me what that was. But I understand understood it to be Botox, you know, which yeah, I, I essentially took his Botox, but it was like their patented blend of whatever filler Botox. Sure. A, taste of their, a literal taste of their own medicine, as, yeah. as Malcolm cheekily says. But there were just so many needles this episode. So, so many. many. Too many needles just generally dangling out of the sides of people's necks and shoulders Listen, and clavicles. I'm not into all the seeing, needlework. Just seeing Dr. Zhang with all the needles was all I needed. And that was the first five minutes. But there was just so many more. I think we need to raise a glass to Dr. Nicole Zhang for having the most hideous corpse on a show that makes a regular business of having dismembered and disfigured bodies and corpses. I think, I think, and there's a promo shot of it. Actually, if you go to Pod Clubhouse's Twitter account, uh, you'll see it at this point. It'll probably be uh, a little bit back in our feed. But there's a there's a picture of Adresa or Keiko standing next to the 
uh, Zhang corpse and in, in its gruesomeness. And it's just hideous. So even it's, staring at the photo of the pullet, I, I was like, Ugh, Ugh. Yes, it's pretty nasty. It's pretty nasty. It's pretty nasty. But so many needles just generally hanging out of people's necks uh, in yeah. this episode. It was a lot. It was a lot. That being said, I did like Idris's fun spin on it that she was Botoxed to death. I thought that was, I thought that oh, was pretty catchy. And she was cheerful as anything. Oh, my Lord. I mean, yeah, listen, no one gets up for a good murder or an original murder like Idris. So. Oh, absolutely. Oh, she was here for it, for sure. Hey, who knew Malcolm is a boob guy? Uh, stay, stay with me. Stay with me here. Okay, okay. I trust you. I trust All right. you. So Francine DePaul, which is funny because she has a very like French spelling, D-E-P-A-U-G-H. That's mm-hmm. how you spell her last name. But I had a very like pound puppies or like a Paw Patrol reaction to her name. So I just wrote like D and then like an apostrophe and then like paw, paw? like 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 a, like an animal paw like, like a paw patrol rrr, yeah. like a paw patrol yeah. yeah so in my notes it says francine d or apostrophe paw which i found very funny anyway <laughs> poor francine and, and her and her plastic surgery addiction when she's describing at the end of the episode she's describing summer uh, also known as lana as it turns out at the end of the episode it's only when i mean she gives a lot of descriptors it's only after she says teardrop sees if you know if i could take a guess that malcolm turns to danny and says ah that's summer <laughs> malcolm you horn dog i'm here for her, buddy teardrop sees that's where that's where it's at buddy oh my god that that was the giveaway the teardrop sees teardrop okay sees. I have blue eyes five five you know long hair i mean how many women did you come across this episode that fit that analogy or uh, her boob shape though malcolm was like i got it not just the cup size, the the shape as well. I mean, teardrop is very specific, right? Teardrop sees and Malcolm. I mean, he his head. He probably had a little whiplash. He turns his head so fast. He says, "That's summer." Uh, he says, "That summer," as and I know those tits anywhere. It was very funny, and but I also like. I never felt closer to Malcolm. <laughs> interesting because we don't get a lot of a lot of our murders deal with themes and they deal with uh, motives that malcolm identifies in his profile and it's often revenge based or it's you know we had the season we had the justice killing uh and someone living by a code uh, this week was really focused in not only on lana or summer's motivations for wanting to kill the partners of the lexington collective but about the uh, the idea of body dysmorphia and the money that plastic surgeons and that the beauty industry in general makes. I'm happy that the show brought this up because this is a topic that doesn't get talked about enough. Uh, there was a show from a couple of years ago. A couple of years ago, it was called Dietland. Uh, it was an AMC show. It was only it only lasted one season. It was a great show, and it was entirely about the unhealthy images that women in particular are bombarded with in this country. And they have this concept that they introduce in the show that has always stayed with me. And I, I pitch to people and I pitch it and I pitch it to my lady friends all the time, this idea of the dissatisfaction industrial complex. And Malcolm t- says, it talks about it perfectly in this episode. Uh, he talks about it in that scene with Danny, where he says the, the core business of, of plastic surgeons and, and beauty supply companies is to make you feel bad about yourself, to create an ideal that no woman can ever achieve. And the idea that the, the, it's an industrial complex, but it's based on 
it's not the beauty industrial complex. It's the beauty dissatisfaction industrial complex. They only make money when they make you feel like shit about who you are and make you feel ugly on your insides, no matter how beautiful you actually may be. It's not a topic that gets talked about enough. It is a real personal pet peeve of mine. I recommend everyone go out. It's actually on Hulu, I believe, streaming right now. If you have Hulu, go watch Dietland. It's fantastic. You go over to Pop Culture Review and read the the 10 episode recaps that we wrote for it. I'm a big fan of uh, that show because it captured this message so importantly, and I was really happy to see Prodigal Son touch upon this tonight and and give it as much attention as the show ever gives any kind of topic or theme. You know, I felt like they actually went a little bit deeper into the motive here than we usually get because it is a real thing. It is a real motive, and people should be more aware of it, how insidious these companies and these professions really are. Two things. I actually just shared a meme this week saying that, like, you know, it's a, it's a woman in a shampoo aisle and, a, and you know, basically says if, if the label makes you feel like your soul has been crushed, this is the right beauty product for you. And also the the theme of this with with what you said, I think that was really important. It actually permeated the the, the subplot lines as well. Like I mentioned when Birdie and Jessica got together and, you know, Jessica greets Birdie and Birdie grabs her by the jowls. Like that's another layer to this this body dysmorphia that that this episode tackles so it just it just found it interesting that when you said this here that that's what it touched on basically all of the storylines well thank you i appreciate it yeah no as soon as i heard what the topic was about as soon as i saw on malcolm's phone plastic surgical vic i was curious about where they were going to go to it but then when malcolm really starts going into uh his explanation for why someone and particularly at that time they were they were chasing francine and as the likely victim and the idea that people become obsessed with plastic surgery because they're always chasing this goal this idea of Donahue telling uh, young Lana Anders in med school that she needs to get her Maller augmentation, her cheekbone lift, so that she could become a world class doctor. That bullshit. Just to sell it, yeah, uh, yeah, is is so it's so pervasive and it's such a real thing that I I, I can't stress enough. People shouldn't just shrug that off as just a mo- mode of murder motive in an episode of Prodigal Son. It is a real thing that we are being bombarded with every day, and y'all should be aware of it and just fight back against the system because they suck and they don't care about you. They are intentionally trying to hurt you mentally and emotionally, if not physically. You use the word insidious, and that really struck a chord because that's really what the beauty industry is all about, is making you feel worthless and that you need XYZ products in order to to make you feel worthwhile. So go yeah. watch Diet Land on Hulu. Come talk to me about it. Uh, I'm always up for a good discussion. Hey, uh, you, you, I rely on you for all the medical mumbo jumbo that happens in the show. Uh, Naroma gets talked about at the end of the episode about when when Malcolm has revealed that Summer is Lana, Lana is Summer, uh, Einhorn is the other guy. <laughs> Finkel is Einhorn. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and if they mentioned aroma, I could have done the work, but I know that's what we keep you around for here at the clubhouse. Oh, thanks. So, you know. so, so what is an aroma? Is that a real thing or is that just a Malcolm uh, made up funny word? The more common street term for it is called a pinched nerve. Well, Jesus Christ, Malcolm. Why couldn't you just say that, you fancy well, because, pants Because, you know, duck? he's just fancy. He's got, you know, the Quantico brain and Harvard brain. Basically, it's, it's usually considered a benign growth between bone and uh, tissue, nerve tissue. Personally, in our family, like we're dealing with this right now, my husband has to have three 
discs in his neck replaced two days from now because one of the bones is crushing his nerve that is going down his left arm and he plays guitar. So he is currently numb on his left uh, arm side. So that's not good. But um, yeah, it basically it creates a burning, tingling, numbness sensation and it could be all three at the same time. It can vacillate between any of those three. It's usually benign. It usually goes away on its own with physical therapy and whatnot. But uh, sometimes it does last uh, in Lana's case. All right, let's get into the actual characters uh, this episode, you know, like we usually do. Let's talk. We're going to talk Malcolm. We're going to talk Ainsley. We're going to talk Martin. And then uh, just a little bit of cleanup with everyone else. Danny, Jessica, JT and Gil didn't really have much. Um, but as always, we got to start with our main man of pain, Mr. Malcolm. Is it just me or is Malcolm finding it increasingly harder to kind of keep his shit together and his life compartmentalized? Lou talked about this in our interview, but I want to highlight it here. There's a scene where Ainsley calls him when she's still at his apartment and the screen goes split screen. But at the same time, Danny comes in to tell him about the toxicology report and the needle and the Botox agent that Adresa found. And and you really feel with the split screen and then with Danny also talking talking in his ear there's this sense of his world literally kind of coming together like he 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 can't keep it all straight and he can't keep it all blocked out and it's really starting to show its wear and tear on him no I agree. And I think the split screen and, and Lou confirmed a lot of what um, my note taking and, and thought process of where this episode was going is that Malcolm is is kind of fraying at the seams and not able to to keep it together. This is it's eating him alive. And his breakdown at the end of the episode really highlighted that for me. So, yeah, I find it it's harder for him to keep up the facade the, the cracks in the in the foundation are are getting bigger and bigger. They're becoming crevices. I just wonder what's going to happen or or when he's going to break. Let's talk about that end scene where he finally breaks down, because I think that's the perfect culmination of everything, really, for a couple of episodes now that has been building towards, and particularly in this this episode, with uh, really from the moment Ainsley turned to him on his couch and her her short covered in blood at the very end of last week, he's been heading towards this breakdown he has at the end of tonight's episode. I think this scene is remarkable, one, because of of his breakdown where he finally comes to tears and Malcolm is not someone who cries easily. He feels emotion for sure, but he's not someone who cries easily. So I think it's remarkable for that. It's also remarkable though, because Ainsley is so cold in it and in fact turns the tables on him and is not only not sympathetic, but she's icy and blames him. She has, she has aggressive anger towards him that she also lets loose here in the scene. So let's listen to it. And then let's break this down because I think this is a, a crux of the episode. Do you have any idea what you put me through? Do you? You lied to me. Underestimated me for months. I have given up everything for you! I don't even know who I am anymore because of what I have done to protect you. Protect me or control me? You know, for someone who spent the last few decades trying to recover from being gaslit, it's ironic how quickly you resorted to it. That's not the same. I was trying to save you pain. That's exactly what Dad would say. 
There's a lot there. There's a lot there. And really, you could see from Malcolm's point of view where he fe- where he really has sacrificed so much of himself from and ch- and been changed because of it. How many times have we caught him having flashbacks to his Dr. Jekyll and, and his Mr. Hyde personality smiling over Endicott's body with the bone saw? That's not a Malcolm that was ever allowed to surface before. Maybe it's always been there or maybe it's always been there since his father became the surgeon but that's a that's a part of malcolm that he has always at least kept suppressed and now it's at the surface and something he is constantly wrestling with that's at the surface because of ainsley now is he right or wrong for having kept this from her for so long that's a debatable point and really gets to her point which is something you and i actually talked about a little bit last week uh and she actually makes the point tonight had you told me sooner about Endicott, this wouldn't have happened, whatever the this was with the, the with the blood on her shirt. So they both have points here, but is is she making fair comparisons of Malcolm to Martin? That that Malcolm is increasingly becoming like Martin, uh, which is funny because Bertie says that he start he's starting to look more and more like him. But uh, Ainsley goes out and, and affirmatively accuses him of becoming acting like their father. What what's your feeling on on his on her anger towards him? justified or no i don't think she's being fair to him because she did something horrible and he did everything he could to to protect her as he said she's she's got it's kind of hard because she's got a right to be angry because you know having the truth kept from you is never a good thing but at the same time she has this trait where i mean she doesn't remember firsthand the Endicott murder. So would she have been able to control it had she known? I don't know. Or will she be able to control it now that she knows? I I doubt it. So I don't think that she's being very fair to him. I'm going to take devil's advocate, though, and I'm going to say I think she has a fair point to say Malcolm has just Malcolm just assumed and Jessica also just assumed she wouldn't be able to handle it. And maybe she wouldn't have been able to handle it, but isn't it her right to have that breakdown or not? I, I don't I don't think Malcolm is the arbiter of mental health uh, and ideal mental health at that. I understand why from a protective big brother aspect and having been so much closer to serial killers all his life and spent time with them and, and having been closer to their father and understanding the world, I understand why his instinct is to protect her from it, but I think she has a valid point. I wouldn't want someone keeping something from me that I did. That's a huge plot hole, especially when you know I'm suffering from the memory gap. It's one thing if she had no idea anything happened, it was a complete void and they kept it from her because at least she wouldn't even know she was being lied to. For so long now, Ainsley knew she was being lied to and the truth was being kept from her and it was still being kept from her, which is the worst possible position for someone. It could literally make you feel like you're going crazy knowing there's something out there that you're not being told that is something that affects you directly. That would drive me crazy. So I think she has kind of a valid point. I am upset that she is not sympathetic at all to him i mean she gives a she gives a modicum of i appreciate that when he says i'm sorry to her for the path that he took for taking the path that he took but she's not at all sorry or sympathetic to his breakdown to what he has sacrificed trying to keep her safe as he sees it that's disturbing to me that's my real problem with her like her tactic here because she is so stony and she's so calculating i i i don't know if that's the right 
term for it, but I mean, she's she's emotionally cut off. She's badgering him, basically. He's breaking down in front of her. I did this for you. I did this to save you pain. And she's just relentless. And it was very, it was very psychopathic. It was, there were psychopathic and sociopathic tendencies in this exchange from Ainsley directed at Malcolm. The fact that she was emotionless, that she wasn't even reacting to the pain that this person that she loves more than, you know, probably anybody else is going through. And she's still coming at him and she needs to get to her end. That's more the problem that I'm just like, you can't fault Malcolm for where he came from. He came from a good place. Is it wrong to keep the truth from somebody? Yes. You can also understand the place that he's coming from and somehow come to a happy medium. She's just relentless. She just wants to have her answers and whoever's in her way be damned. I mean, this was a pretty ruthless way to get at the truth. This cruel prank that she's been playing on him since the end of the last episode, does that actually fully explain her behavior this entire episode? Because... She knows that she did something, and obviously she knows that she killed Endicott. She still doesn't seem terribly sad about it, right? And and so that, for me, is the troubling Ainsley aspect of it. I think she has a right to be mad at Malcolm for keeping the truth from her. That's basket over here, basket one over here. Mm-hmm. But basket two is girlfriend is not remorseful about it at all Mm-mm. that's a real fucking problem that's real, my problem with that's this. a real problem and it's a huge red flag for me so th- this is the clip that we were talking about before this is why malcolm should be worried about his sister not for the pork uh, the pig blood prank not for her it's aggressive anger prank. it's it's well it's, i mean probably not to the pig whatever she hacked up to put the blood on her shirt but it's a prank from her point of overall, view overall like i don't find it as a prank i find it as the most fucked up thing that a person can do like you're pretending to have murdered somebody like just to draw an underline under that right there is a dead body here there's a very real dead body we just saw the head at the end of this episode it is in estonia there's a real person here that she now knows without a doubt all of the pieces now of her puzzle have been filled in and she still doesn't seem remorseful but on top of that you have this clip this whole thing was completely deranged you realize that right okay it was a little over the top but i had to make sure that you were never gonna mess with my head again seriously though you need to lighten up we got away with it you don't know that hmm I do. We're Whitley's. No one does this murder stuff better than us. Whoa. That is some, like, bravado. Whoa. I mean, Ainsley has got a set of brass balls on her that probably surpass Martin. Because even if Martin thought this, and Martin probably definitely thinks this, but also Martin did get caught because of his eight-year-old kids, you know, tattling on him. So Martin has some humility about this because he actually was taken down. This is, you know, his father's daughter speaking here. Bertie at that family dinner warns Malcolm that if my father was a serial killer, I don't know that I'd lean into murder uh, so quite deeply, so much, yeah, quite yeah. so much as you do. And Ainsley scoffs kind of that, and she, she's throwing lots of shade and, and passive-aggressive, uh, you know, uh, looks and glances and and hoffs and scuffs at him during that dinner she's the one who's really leaning into the surgeon's legacy malcolm makes the point that he has leaned into murder but in a capture and stop the bad guy uh, Ainsley Some is of the leaning, time. Well, yeah. yeah. 
Ainsley, she's also inherited her father's ability for quips, which is not a bad skill. Uh, but she's the one who's really leaning into the family business on the murder, murder, stabby, stabby side without remorse. It's the lack of remorse and sympathy. There are no tears here. It's Malcolm who is crying at the end of this episode. You know, Ainsley opens that door like a goddamn goddess come from uh, straight out of hell. Right. Mm-hmm. And I mean, by the way, murder suits her because she looks fantastic in that scene. Yeah. When she opens the door, the double doors and, and is standing there, she, the high yeah. was the pass. She glides in. Oh, poof, her her blood skin regimen is on point. Whatever she's doing with the porks, uh, the pig's blood is fantastic. Anywho, yeah, that's the real that's the real troubling thing here. And, and as we go into this long long winter break that's the thing that malcolm needs to be most worried about and probably is worried about not that she's mad at him not that martin is flirty flirty with a doctor at claremont not that jessica's about to write a tell-all book it's your sister has no remorse for the things that have happened now that she knows the truth she still doesn't give a shit all she's thinking is we got away with it and by the way, you didn't get away with it because we got this badass Europol detective coming to visit you. It's all very troubling. She She's really on the teeter-totter and maybe in this episode even went over the edge to the dark side. It's just how far does she go and does she is she redeemable? Is she does she have a return of the Jedi, you know, last act redeemability in her or is she full on emperor, you know, emperor palpatine? Way to take that metaphor pretty deep there, but something that happened in the last episode and because we had like the two week pause in between or the week, you know, between in the in the dream sequence she is a doctor, she's a neurosurgeon and Martin is, you know, touting her abilities as even better than mine. That has like stuck in my head since that episode to now have that kind of like mulling about in my brain and then come into this episode and just this end scene, notwithstanding everything that she done throughout the episode, but this scene with Malcolm and the way it was like her, him, the way it was shot. And Lou tells us a little bit about that in the, in the interview, it was literally pitting like good versus evil in, in this, in the scene for me, I feel that she is down a path that she is, she's headed and she's, she's sliding into it. Like, like, wee, like she is going down the right. slide redeemable. I, I don't know because I feel that the, the beginning clip of Mar- of Malcolm at Quantico in 2015, talking about, you know, the encounters that you'll have throughout your life with murders and potential serial killers and how it's that second murder where the switch is flipped and it flips to Ainsley. I think all of that is very well cut, well edited to make you feel that she's gone down this path. And, and I, I mean, I was just listing off the psychopathic and sociopathic tendencies that she was exhibiting in this conversation with Malcolm, the lack of remorse, the the blaming Malcolm for her actions so that she had to go to this extreme of killing a pig or getting pig's blood from a butcher or however she did it to get him to reveal the truth in the most savage and vicious way possible with no respect or no remorse or no thought to his feelings and, and how this is destroying him and not for nothing what he did to help her if anything's gonna happen like he's gonna go down for the murder because he's the one who literally chopped up the body and shipped it and did all the rest of it like he's gonna go down worse than she is yeah and her the reaction of chill out is chilling uh really i mean that yeah that all of those things you're pointing out are really the the red flags malcolm has to be worried about i also feel like going forward jessica is like a loose cannon here because she knows ainsley doesn't know that she knows so i feel that that's another little wrinkle you know that that could be in play too 
So I'm not sure where that's going to go. But I just, it popped into my head as I was watching this. I was like, but Jessica knows too. And Ainsley doesn't know that she knows. Well, yeah. And that gets particularly tricky because Jessica now is looking at to write this tell-all book. But we'll get, let's get to that at the, at the end when we're doing uh, the smaller storyline wrap-up. I want to go back to something you just said. And I want to play this clip. This is the clip that we opened the episode with also. I mean, anyone can be a murderer. <laughs> Wrong place. Wrong time. An accident. An impulse. Oh, God, Malcolm. What happened? But there's another type of killer. For them, murder is an addiction. A bad love they can't quit. Truth is, anyone can do it once. But the second kill, that's when the switch is flipped and a serial killer is born. That's the hypothesis of this episode. That's the hypothesis of the Ainsley storyline that we have been talking about this entire season so far, going all back, all, all the way back to uh, episode 201, the, the, the birth of a serial killer. That scene with Ainsley, even if she didn't remember pulling back Endicott's hair, exposing his throat and opening him like a fish from ear to ear. That's the birth of a serial killer right there. And uh, and maybe it's not her second kill, but as far as Malcolm knows, whatever she killed at the end of last episode was her second murder. And that's why it's on his mind, I think. I do want to ask you, though, the show doesn't do anything accidentally. What does it mean that they're showing us... Malcolm from 2015 at the FBI headquarters in Quantico giving this lecture uh, in the in the classroom about the birth of serial killers. They could have placed that speech anywhere. That could have been Malcolm just talking to himself, thinking about his sister, which clearly he's mulling over because we're seeing flashes of Ainsley. Uh, and then at the end of the scene, picks up with what happened at the end of last week's episode that we didn't see, where he kind of goes into triage mode about, you know, I'm sure it'll be fine kind of thing. If the show doesn't do anything by accident, what is the purpose of putting, uh, of showing Showing us five or now six years ago, Malcolm at Quantico. What, what, what do you think? What, what's the purpose of uh, putting him back at, at the FBI headquarters to show us that scene? So one, it's to make sure that I have more TV shows to watch going forward of uh, different murders and serial killers. Um, also fucking frightening that there's that many murders, potentially serial, because I'm not going to say that like it's word for word true what the, st- the statistics are. You know, the, the, the fact that there's, you know, 25 to 35 serial killers on the loose in the United States at any given time is is a chilling fact. And that's kind of up where Malcolm was saying, I think it's intentional because I, I, I'm going to say it's reinforcing my theory that Ainsley is headed down a very dark and cruel path. To have that there as the opening and the last thing that we saw was Ainsley potentially having killed somebody with blood all over her. And then the end of that speech being the pickup to to that scene. Her mind is changing. Her mind is warping. And whatever switch Malcolm talks about is is being closely touched to being flicked to on. The last thing we need to talk about before we move on from Malcolm and Ainsley is where Malcolm realizes Ainsley has been playing him for a fool. The idea that revenge is leaving him alive to live with the pain that he's created is his realization, not only uh, as advice for Lana to do to Donahue to get revenge on him for what he did to her all those years ago in medical school, but it's Malcolm's aha light bulb moment that Ainsley is doing 
this to him. So let's listen to this clip and let's talk about it uh, afterwards. If you want to get even, Lana, get even. You've turned him into everything that he hates. <laughs> so let him live. Like this. A monster who'll wake up every day trapped in a nightmare. Unable to recognize himself in a mirror. Believe me. I know. That's real pain. Best revenge is letting him live like this. So there's two things going on here in the speech. The first part is Malcolm talking about himself and I think his father. This idea of you have made me into this monster that I now have to live with every day. And about Ainsley, too, because he says when he's breaking down to her at the end of the episode, he says, I am this way because of you. I don't know who I am anymore. You know, another way of saying that is I'm this monster I don't recognize anymore because of what I did to protect you. But also he blames his father and he had this whole shouting match. Think back to the group therapy with uh, Michael Potts, that episode. He blames his father for also putting this darkness inside him. It's interesting saying it out loud. Malcolm blames a lot of people for how he is who he is, which is usually a sign that you probably need to look inside yourself a little bit. In fairness, sorry to interrupt, but in fairness, when you're talking about serial killers, like that that's a different realm. Like if, you know, your daddy was mean to you or your mommy, you know, was toxic or whatever it ends up being, that's different than, you know, my dad killed 23 people. Sure. And maybe tried to kill me. I'm just pointing out that when people spend all their time saying other people have made them the way they are, usually there is something inside of them that is probably part, uh, at least part and part, part of the reason they are the way they are. Uh, but in this speech, particularly, he's thinking about his father, but he's also speak, thinking about Ainsley making him a monster that he has to wake up with and live with every morning and, and, and face in the mirror. But then that back end where he talks about revenge is letting him, you know, stay this way and live this way. He's no longer really talking to Lana. He's really off in his own world because he's putting it together about what Ainsley did. And that's where he reveal. that's where I think he has this aha moment, which the pig's blood DNA analysis that Adresa gives him that we see off camera, but we don't see happens off camera confirms that she's been playing him for a fool this whole time, this whole hour. For me, my takeaway was now I'm worried about Malcolm. If Ainsley feels so much anger towards Malcolm that she is causing him to have this pain as revenge that he has to live with and seems to be doing it affirmatively does Malcolm have to worry about his own safety when it comes to his sister now? Not just worry about her becoming a psychopathic serial killer, but maybe actually have to start worrying about her, him as being one of her targets. What do you think about that? There was a moment this episode where Malcolm was on the phone and she's in the loft with him and she kind of creeps up behind him. And like my immediate reaction was like, oh, Jesus Christ, like I don't need to have this worry that now you're going to do something Ainsley to Malcolm. You, you just hit on something that I touched on in my notes that I didn't even, you know, sort of like break down here yet. There's there's just a lot. There's a lot there. But also like Ainsley, just to back up for a second, Ainsley's also doing the same thing. So she's blaming 
Malcolm for how she's become, like by lying to her and not knowing what she's done and not knowing like who she is in this new realm. So she's doing a lot of the same things that you're saying that like Malcolm's blaming a lot of people for how he is, but she's also doing the same thing. And she's not taking accountability either for what she's done. She's just saying it's, it's, it's you, it's what you've done to me. And I had to do this in order to prove that. That is very true. And I think that is a big difference between Malcolm and Ainsley is Malcolm takes accountability. Even when he's saying, I did this for you, he never doesn't say he didn't do it. He is, he's always taking accountability for the things that he's done, even if he did it for someone else. Ainsley is not taking any accountability. Ainsley thinks her shit doesn't stink to the nth degree and feels no responsibility or remorse for anything that's happened, which is not semantic. It is a key and vital point because when you look at psychopathic tendencies, when you look at the anatomy of a serial killer, the lack of remorse, the lack of feeling responsible or taking accountability for your actions is very, very important. It is a key psychological factor to the mindset of a person who will kill not once, but multiple times. Because if you didn't feel bad about it the first time, that's the thing that often will keep people from doing it a second time. You know, that right. did not feel good. I did it out of whatever reason, you know, self-defense or scared or fear. But if you never feel that, if you're like, you know, if you do a justified killing, right? If someone attacks you, you hurt them, you kill them in self-defense. Most people are still going to wake up in cold sweats, vomiting and feeling nauseous and sick about taking a life, even if it was justified, even if you were the law and everyone else says that what you did was OK because you kept yourself alive. You had to protect yourself. Most people are still going to feel tremendous guilt about mm -hmm. that because you have taken a life. And that is it's the thing you need to make a horcrux for fuck's sake. I mean, Jesus Christ. <laughs> Uh, and you, know, you have to split your soul in order to make a horcrux, and you just split your soul by killing, by taking a life. That is serious shit, man. You're Voldemort at a point here, Ainsley. She's like, la-da-da! -da. We got away with it. We We're got Whitley's. away with it. Us Whitleys are great at murder. I mean, that has to be something that even give Martin pause. If Martin heard that, I think even Martin would take pause and say, well, dear, let's let's not, you know, let's not be too hasty into the yeah, bloodlust train. Yeah. Let's back that up. And, and, and you know, even um, when Martin calls Malcolm and, you know, this auspicious day and Malcolm's like, wait, did you talk to Ainsley? He thought that Martin mm -hmm. was was rejoicing in this. Right. Um, so. But My no, girl! Right. For sure. But yeah, no, there was just a lot of there was a lot of celebration of her ability from Ainsley. And it's it's not well founded because she didn't do she did obviously the deed, but she didn't follow it through, whereas Martin has followed it through, we know of 23 times. So, that, yeah, there's just a lot going on there that just is, is very unsettling for me. Let's go over to Claremont, because the other uh, action in this episode was taking place between Martin, who yeah, we was. learn has now a job, has been given a job at Claremont working in the infirmary, making $3.20 a day. And you know what? That's criminal. <laughs> he enjoys being needed. And I think when, when when he tells Malcolm, I I do enjoy being needed, I think that is the most self-reflection Martin has ever done about himself. 
because uh, he's a guy who thinks a lot of himself and it is delusional, I think, often about who he is and, and his place in the world. But man, did he nail it on the head saying that he does enjoy being needed. What did you think of Dr. Capshaw in this episode, though? Because she's the big get, right? She's the big attraction here at Claremont this week. The introduction to Catherine Zeta-Jones as Dr. Vivian Capshaw. What did you think of this introduction? What Did this make you interested in the character, finding out more about her? Do you want to see, Do you do you need to know more about her now after tonight? Oh my God. I need to know. I need the backstory. I need the bio. I need, I just need her. I need her CV. I need to sit down with her with like a glass of wine. I need to know, like, why do you want to work in a mental institution? Like, why do you want to, for the criminally insane? I mean, you know, like it's not just your regular run of the mill state hospital. Why does being annoyed by Martin and killing someone have the same weight with her? And what's, what's the allure of this butterscotch? I, I need to. I need to know. I need to know more about Dr. Vivian Capshaw. This, this was not enough for me. The idea of killing someone and annoying her carrying the same penalty in her one strike policy, her use of lever- of butterscotch's leverage is pretty on point for the kind of people Claremont hires. In a lot of ways, Dr. Vivian Capshaw's first impressions to me is like, was was basically, this is exactly the kind of crackpot doctor that claremont hires the the person that could just as easily be a patient here as a doctor running a therapy group <laughs> the the line is so thin at the hiring uh you know the hiring at, at claremont is is so thin between patient and doctor it's pretty loose pretty it's loose. pretty loose i mean yeah yeah, yeah dr can... marsh was a little questionable but i think dr capshaw has a lot of competence i don't i feel her ethics are a bit higher than dr marsh's so far i mean she doesn't so really far she doesn't push back on martin and his nine sixteenth drill bit idea too too hard when it comes to cracking open old quentin's skull uh and using the uh we got another mention of the of the women's ward that's two we yes, said we said that is two. Mm-hmm. we said now that they've introduced the women's ward we'll hear it about it again and we heard about the fact that and they the ultrasound was living there the 30 year old ultra ultrasound machine why do you think think she has Martin removed from the room after they go through the successful surgery together, where, again, Martin doesn't have to do the thing himself in order to get off on it, right? He He's, he's <laughs> getting off on it, and, and not even sexually, but a little sexually. Oh, there's a lot of sexual tension going on in but that room. That scene in particular, it was a reinforcement of this, I do enjoy being needed. Just being the guy who was the, he was the Zazu to, to you know, uh, to uh scar uh, capshaw scar uh you know of uh zazu yeah no Z- no he's yeah, zazu. zazu he's mufasa's Z- Mufasa, uh, yes he yeah. was uh he was the zazu to mufasa or or then simba you know uh, as which is dr capshaw you know the right hand man kind of like whispering in her ear on 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 you're doing a great job you want to do this go slow he didn't need to be doing the thing himself the same way he is with malcolm he didn't need to be chopping up endicott's body and shipping it to estonia he just needed to be on the phone coaching malcolm through the thing that's what gets malcolm martin off nowadays he he he's grown beyond needing to be the surgeon with the scalpel himself. I'm sure he would still like to do that, but he is satisfied being the person that the person relies upon because he enjoys being needed. And right. I I had the idea, and now it worked. 
you're putting into practice this idea and I'm here for you, whether you want to admit it or not, I am being a guidance for you, a counselor for you. I'm being I'm being a source of encouragement and a cheerleader for you. That's the thing that he really wants to get from Malcolm and gets often and it is when he is happiest when he gets that from Malcolm. And tonight he really got his catnip and, and his uh, scratch, his itch scratched from Dr. Capshaw listening to him in getting the ultramasound machine in, in trusting his diagnosis for the brain bleed and then for going forward and relieving the pressure and saving Quentin's life. That all happened because of him calmly suggesting it and, and her trusting in it. That's going to create a powerful bond, I think, between between Capshaw and Martin, at least from Martin's point of view. Talk to me about the sexual tension that you sense, though, between them. Oh, my God. It was it was nigh from the second that Martin walked in the room. She like looked at like, is that Whitley with that, you know, the cigarettes and razor blades voice that you talked about? The butterscotch and the way that she just put the butterscotch in her mouth and like sucked on it. That was completely sexual. At the very end, when when she goes to give him the butterscotch, she steps over the line. No fear. Equal to Martin in many ways. A great story about that scene for, in our interview with Lou Diamond Phillips. So definitely oh, listen to yeah. that interview because he has a great take and a great story about the filming of that scene between uh, Michael and Catherine. Yeah, complete like behind the scenes. So she, you know, she hands him the butterscotch. As she hands him the butterscotch, she's biting her lip. I mean, I don't know about you, Mike, but I mean, if a woman is standing across from you at a bar and she's biting her lip, like, what are you thinking? I mean, a woman gives me candy or snacks. I mean, you're going to get, you're going to go pretty far with me. But gives you candy, snacks, something that you can suck on and then bites her lip. As she's staring at you I, in a I, very I, smoldering kind of a way. You, you, you can't deny the sexual tension between the two of them. But is that why she has him removed? Does he push it too far too soon after the surgery? And she doesn't want to either reveal her blushing or she doesn't reveal her feelings. Or is she actually because she there's a little look of like revulsion or or guilt on her face that maybe she enjoyed that with him too, too much. What's your reason she has him pulled? Because that went against the sexual tension having him removed i think it was a power play i think it was like she maybe shown up by martin a little bit because he figured it out he knew where the brain bleed was and how to fix it and i think she had him removed just to restore the power dynamic between them like get him out of here we can clean it up you know your, your work here is done so. does the arrival of dr capshaw and the fact that we know she's going to be around now for the rest of the season because we know Catherine zeta jones has signed on as a series regular for the rest of the season does the arrival of Dr. Capshaw change Martin's plan to try and escape Claremont? Is there a new toy and catnip inside Claremont that's going to keep Martin there, do you think? Catnip, Catherine Jada Jones, cat, catnip. Very, very well played pun there. You didn't even realize what you did. I mean, that's how, that's how I roll. I roll on levels. I roll deep on levels. <laughs> Uh, I think this does put a little bit of a, a damper on his plans because the the smoldering was mutual between these two. So um, I think if he's getting some sort of intellectual stimulation, if if not in other stimulating kind of ways, if he's getting something out of Claremont that was missing before, he might stick around. I'm, I'm, I'm still not sold on the fact that he's going to actually shank or shiv Mr. David in order to get the last key card that he needs, because we know that that's the trifecta that he needs because um, the gold card got away from him. But uh, yeah, I think this does put a, a, a bit of a, a damper on his, uh, 
his desire to you know be free in the streets of Manhattan. Yeah, I think it's going to be an interesting. I think it's an interesting wrench in the works. And remember, we haven't seen we haven't seen uh, Friar Pete in quite a while. Yeah. So when we get him back on the scene and we have Capshaw, you know, those are two different kinds of devils on Martin's shoulders. It's going to be interesting to see which way he gets pulled. You know, escape Claremont or stick around and see what uh, what butterscotch may be unwrapped uh, if he hangs around in the infirmary a little bit longer. Wow, I do need to see. I do need to see Jessica, Dr. Capshaw, and Martin in the same room together and just to see what the fireworks are. Oh, my God. I, I don't even know my heart can handle such a thing. I don't know that Martin's heart can handle such a thing. No. I love how sexual Martin is. And we, oh, we, only ever, time. we only really get to see it when Jessica is around because that is the typical object of his affection. But here's the thing. Martin's got a type. Martin likes a feisty woman. He likes a bold, confident, strong, powerful woman. He He's not interested in a doormat. He wants a feisty Jessica. He wants a Capshaw, a Dr. Capshaw, who can stand toe-to-toe with him intellectually professionally power dynamically is you know is a doctor where he is a patient and an inmate at this psychiatric hospital i mean she is checking a lot of the get martin's engine going boxes that we know get checked because of how he is with jessica right and intellectually she's his match yeah 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 and and you know she took to drilling into a guy's skull in a way that a serial killer uh who was known as the surgeon had to be delighted in i'm just like how did they sterilize all that stuff but you know that's neither here nor there that's for quentin to worry about uh later on in his recovery yeah. uh before we get to our interview with lou diamond phillips there's one more person i want to talk about really quickly uh and that's danny uh let's play this clip and suddenly i feel super insecure that's the point Plastic surgeons make money on insecurity. Anxiety and dysmorphia is their core business model. In this world, nobody can feel good enough, even when they're as beautiful as you. In this world, no one can feel good enough, even as when they're as beautiful as you. Whoa. Whoa, Malcolm. I... This is not your subconscious dream world, my man. You are in the real world. What are you doing dropping the the your, as beautiful as you comments? That's a next level escalation of this relationship. And he doesn't even fucking realize it, Sheila. She no. stops dead in her tracks. When he turns around and she's 10 steps behind him, he doesn't understand why. He doesn't even realize what he said. Oh, my God. The looks between them was just priceless. Like, Danny's just like, wait, what? And Malcolm's like, wait, what? She's just blown away that he drops it so casually. And then she doesn't press him on it because he clearly doesn't even realize what he said, which is which is the best probably testament that it just spilled out of his subconscious brain without him realizing it, which is, it makes it the most truthful thing that he could probably say. And I think Danny picks up on that. Remember, she is a good she is a good detective. Right. This takes their relationship in the real world to a whole other level because she wasn't repulsed by it. She wasn't put off by it. Had she been, I think she would have called him on it. If JT had said such a thing to him, uh, such a thing to her, not that she would have been repulsed by JT, but she would have been like, what did you say to me? But she swallows it and she doesn't press Malcolm on it because because I think that's it's hitting on a feelings that she also has. You know, she gives Adresa a little bit of a look in this episode when Adresa is overtly coming on to Malcolm earlier in the episode and she gives her, she gives Adrisa a look that's kind of like sister really but also kind of like bitch please like 
this lioness has already claimed this man kind of thing. And there's, there's a look there. When you combine that with the fact that Danny continues to ask him, and I think sincerely, what is going on in his world? And she gives him this great advice, and I should have pulled that clip where she says, uh, talking about Ainsley, she, drawing on her own experiences, she says, you know, listen, don't let her drag you down with her. And then he says, what if she already has? And she, and her alarms go up. Her her red flags go up because she's protective of Malcolm. She says, what happened? What is going on? And, and then he kind of covers and he catches himself. Malcolm has to start being more careful with what he says around Danny because now he's just letting words fall out of his mouth around her. Yes. That's, that's troubling to keeping this whole secret enterprise of murder a secret. Well, do you, do you think that if, if Malcolm breaks, is it Danny that he's going to break to and in front of? Yes. Uh, the simple answer is yes. He's the most comfortable around her and she is around him more than anybody else. Like they're definitely partnered together more often than anybody else. So she's with him and she's starting to see the pathways of his brain where he's he's when he's doing that, the diagnosing of the profile with in, in the plastic surgeon's office. When he says, you know, it can't be as beautiful as you. He's in holdover mode from the dream state that he was in last episode where his parallel track with her is they're they're an item they're they're together so he's most comfortable in her presence he let his guard down without even realizing he wasn't even conscious for that conversation he was just you know in his brain delivering the profile right she wasn't like you said she wasn't repulsed by it she was kind of like oh okay i was it was just adorable she was floored by it i i think she i think she was so taken off guard but but flattered no words yeah had no words for it just like oh okay she was speechless in a flattered way that's what her body language was saying Yes, definitely. Like the, the the smile, like she was like trying to repress the smile, but it was there. Um, and then just the looks back and forth between them was just priceless. Yeah, but yeah, I'm worried though that him letting his guard down so unknowingly around her, like we saw in that scene, is really bad when your brain is filled up on secrets and clandestine things that uh, that involve murder and murder committed by your family and murder committed by you and body dismemberment. And having the detective being the other person that you're most comfortable around and and having this lack of ability to compartmentalize it and to to be struggling to keep it all together, to keep all the balls in the air as you're juggling it. Right. A detective who is invested in you and is paying attention to you like he like JT is not going home and thinking about Malcolm's mental state. Danny is going home and actively thinking about Malcolm's mental state and if he is okay or not. And seeing that he is not okay and increasingly not okay. You know, we started this conversation by talking about how Malcolm is having a problem, uh, an increasing problem keeping his shit together. He's having a problem keeping his shit together in front of Danny and she is picking up on it and, and is not just putting that aside. She's, she's collecting all of that data in the same way Gil would be collecting that, that information if it was happening in front of him. That's going to come a boiling over. I mean, I, I think the back half of the episodes, if if he doesn't accidentally let something slip, if not intentionally, to Danny, I would be very surprised based on this trajectory. Line of the night has to be this one. Beautiful. Okay, now, next step, we're going to fast track this right into his heart. This is the worst cooking show ever. <laughs> it is the worst cooking show ever, Danny. You're 100% right. I mean, Martin's put it on my tab if he dies. That was pretty great, but no, the worst cooking show ever is, is far better. All right, guys, that takes us to the end of our main discussion about tonight's winter finale episode, Face Value. Right now, uh, stay tuned because we have our exclusive interview with 
episode director and Gil Arroyo himself, Lou Diamond Phillips. It's a fantastic interview. Lou gave us like an hour of his time, was just so open to talk to us, not only about the show, but about his career, what representation has meant to him throughout his career, the responsibility. But also, Lou Diamond Phillips wrote a book in Pandemic, and we talk about that. We talk about working with his wife, who was the illustrator on the book. It's a great interview. It's far-reaching. If you are a uh, LDP stan, you got to listen to this interview. And he tells us about his cats. And we, and we end the conversation with, with cat talk. Listen to this interview coming up right now and then come back because we have a couple of wrap-up items as to leave you thinking about as we go into the winter finale and our long winter's nap, uh, including an Adresis Corner where I have a very troubling theory. Right now, listen to our interview with Lou Diamond Phillips here. Joining us tonight on The Surgeon Files, we're so excited to have the director of tonight's episode. The man needs no introduction. He has been a staple on movies and TV shows for, God, since the mid-80s without dating him too much. I mean, I, I remember La Bamba, and I remember Young Guns, and I remember uh, Stand to Deliver. These are like formative films of mine. But joining us tonight on The Surgeon Files is Lou Diamond Phillips. Lou, thank you so much for coming and joining us tonight. How are you doing? I'm great, Mike. Thanks for having me, man. Yeah. And uh, yeah, when I when I start to hear about you know, how much work I've done, it's uh, you know it, it just it just makes me weary. It just makes me <laughs> weary to my bones. Uh. I've, I've been around, young man. I have been around. Well, so here's the thing. I just turned 43, and I do not feel like a young man. And I was one of those kids just raised by the screen. And I feel like you've just been a staple all along the way. And so it's extremely comforting to have you every week here on Prodigal Son. You know, it's a great vehicle for you. I was missing you because I was a big Longmire fan. So there was a little bit of Lou Diamond ah. Phillips drought in my life for a bit. So uh, we love having you back on TV. Not for long. I mean, I was fortunate, uh, you know, long Longmire uh, ended in 2017, and then you know I started Prodigal in 2019. So just a brief, uh, a brief little uh, lackaloo, you know. Um, <laughs> yeah, which is, yeah it's, a, it's a dish you can get in Hawaii, uh, lackaloo. It's the true LOL. It's really what LOL stands for. So exactly. But uh, and I, uh, but I think I filled that interim with uh, the 33 about the Chilean miners that I did with uh, Antonio Banderas, and that and that wonderful little uh, film that ended up on Lifetime it was actually an independent film called The Night Stalker that I did with the wonderful Bellamy Young. That was fantastic. Thank you. Yeah, I played Richard Ramirez in that uh, quite creepily. Uh, so uh, <laughs> It was just getting you ready for working with another serial killer. That's all. Strangely enough, you are 100%. I mean, not to you know go diving down that tangent, but people have asked me about the preparation for Prodigal Son and automatically I went to all the research I did for, you know, Richard Ramirez and the Night Stalker. Uh, and Megan Griffith, by the way, the writer and director of that, directed an episode for us in the first season, and we would have had her back, but she's very, very much in demand, and we couldn't slot her in. But yeah, uh, having read uh, Phil Caputo's book, uh, The Night Stalker, and also working with uh, Lieutenant uh, Gil Carrillo, believe it or not, Gil Carrillo, who was uh, one of the task force members uh, who helped uh, track Ramirez down, uh, uh, and then obviously watching all the uh, the footage and, and trying to replicate him physically. So, you know, a lot of that, yeah, I bring to 
Lieutenant Arroyo on uh, um, Prodigal Son and an understanding of people, you know, who not only track down serial killers, but who are serial killers. (laughs) It came in in handy. Just a little note uh, for listeners out there, though there's a Phil Caputo and I am a Michael Caputo, we are not related, unfortunately. I don't have any of that uh, Caputo novelist money coming my way. So, Right. Well, it was a great book, I got to tell you. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, I, as much as I'd love to spend, you know, three, hour, three hours just rehashing your career separate from Bodical Sun, uh, we're going to try hard to keep it there. But I do want to go back a couple of years for that in-between time. Talk to us about how you actually came to be cast as Gil. What was the audition process like? What was it about the role that maybe you drew you to it? Take us back there. One of the reasons I didn't do a, another show right after Longmire was I, I didn't read any pilots that season that were that I did that I wanted to commit to, to be quite honest. And you and you got to look at it, you know, in the long run. It's like ah, you know, will I, will I do this gig? You have to go. Hmm. What if it's successful? If it's successful, I could be in something that's mediocre that doesn't inspire me for 10 years, you know? So if you're going to get involved with a television project, I think you have to be passionate about it uh, in the beginning. You have to love what you're doing and you have to go, I'm excited about this because it can get so stale so fast doing, you know, 20, 20 episodes a year, even just doing 10 episodes a year. If you're doing the same old thing, that's never an aspiration I had for my career. So there was nothing great uh, in that pilot season. And then the next year came along and Prodigal Sown was one of the first pilots I'd read. And I went, wow, it's probably not going to get any better than this. This is a fantastic pilot. It's exciting. Uh, it's different. It's, you know, it's a police procedural, yes, but it, you know, it has this dark humor to it. It has the whole family drama. You know, I, I've often said it's uh, Silence of the Lambs meets This Is Us, you know. That's <laughs> exactly which, what it is, yeah, yeah, for sure. And Gil was such a rich character. I mean, you know, he's not just the boss. Uh, to find out that he has this longtime relationship with Malcolm Bright, that he's basically not only his mentor, but his surrogate father. And, you know, you throw the uh, potential relationship with Jessica Whitley in there, and, and there is a lot to play. Other than just saying, you guys be careful out there, you know, settle down, you, you're a loose <laughs> cannon, you know. So, so th- th- there were just a lot of layers. And then something that, you know, kind of comes natural to me being a father of myself, you know, a father of four daughters is that paternal side. And, and he has it not just for Malcolm, but for, uh, for the rest of his team, you know, and I think we've seen that uh, throughout the last season and a half with Danny, uh, played by Aurora Perrineau, and certainly with JT, who's going through these you know, uh, uh, racism issues that we've dealt with on the show and that, you know, Gil was, you know, like a, like a strong uncle, you know, who's got his back and he goes to bat for him, uh, you know, and, and just this uh, ever patient, uh, I don't know, relationship that he has with Keiko Agena, who plays uh, Drisa. So, you know, the, the, the relationships were very viable and very vibrant. And, and uh, I knew that there would always be something to do. And so, I said, yeah, man, let, let me go in. Uh, uh, and, and, you know, I saw the list of the usual suspects of people who were up for this role. And uh, I've discovered over the years that sometimes what makes all the difference in the world is going into the room. Some people don't want to audition anymore. Um, but I, I discovered a number of years ago, I mean, basically starting with Courage Under Fire, that if you want the role, you got to go in and you got to win it. You got to show them that you want it and you have to uh, go into the arena, fight for it. And, Show them why you're the best choice, uh, especially when you're dealing with people who are as famous or have uh, you know as, as long a resume, perhaps might be as valuable or more valuable in some situations, you know, to to the industry. And and uh, 
you know, you swallow your pride and go in and do it. And this was one I said, that's it. I'm going in. I love this role. Uh, I'd be happy to do it. And if we can, and then if an audition will make the producers cut to the chase, then yes, let's go. And and that's what I did. I went in one time. I had done a number of projects with Peter Roth over at Warner Brothers. So I was very, very quickly approved and had had a very nice relationship actually uh, passingly with Charlie Collier over at Fox. Uh, I had directed A Fear of the Walking Dead for them. And uh, having been sort of a distant cousin of the Walking Dead universe, having been on the uh, Talking Dead couch a couple of times, I had been invited to a few of those premieres and got to hang out with Charlie. So um, once again, the network approved me pretty quick. So it, it was it was fortunate, but I think I had to go in and, and just, just show everybody that I wanted to do this. When you are looking to do a character like this, and, and this show has pretty well drawn, better, better than most on TV, uh, especially broadcast TV, has really well drawn characters with tangible backgrounds. They're really three-dimensional, and Gil Arroyo is no exception. How much of the backstory is important to you in shaping how you play the character? Do you come up with it a lot? Do you do you sit and talk to you know uh, Sam and Chris about who is this guy, or do you just kind of take it on the page and and just play whatever's written without a lot of thought to the beneath the surface? No, I think I think it's really important to to know the the, the road behind a character. You know, if you're playing him on the screen, and fortunately, we talked about this a little bit. I mean, just a lot of the baggage that I have as a human being having just turned 59 years old, you know, all of this comes into play whenever Gil opens his mouth or even, you know, steps into a scene. That that baggage comes. The many, many times I've played cops, um, you know, the many, the many times I've played uh, authority figures. I haven't played a whole lot of dads, but, you know, I am one. So so all, all of this texture, all of this mileage comes with Gil. And then the specifics totally play. It was evident in the pilot that he was still grieving the loss of his wife. We haven't articulated that on the show as of yet, but, but Jackie does come up a couple of times. And that's part of the bond that he has with Danny. You know, I, I think uh, uh, Aurora Theranos' character reminds him of his late wife. It's why he and Jessica didn't get together right away because there were complications with all the relationships. Now, we haven't gotten into specific detail about how all of this transpired uh, over the last 20 years, but it's there. And, and uh, you know, Gil carries that with him. And I have to say that these guys are wonderful. They listen they pay attention. I think that's very evident in the second season as they've been writing to everybody's strengths. They really, really have underlined what everybody brings to the table. Uh, and in the initial conversations about Gil, uh, we covered all of this in broad strokes. But I mean, even even in, in the last name, they allowed me to come up with this. I actually gave them a list. I said, listen, I'm, I'm part Filipino, and uh, I, I can count on literally one hand and less, less than five fingers the times I've played Filipino in my career. Can we make Gil part Filipino? And they were all for it. Uh, and I said, in which case, here are some names that uh, I think could go both ways. People you know, wouldn't know whether, whether he was Latino or whether he was Filipino. And Arroyo was on that list mainly because in 2004, I went back to the Philippines and received a very nice award from uh, the then president, Gloria Macabagal Arroyo, who I took the name from, uh, for my work with the Filipino war veterans. And I just thought, oh, that's such a cool name. It's not one we've heard on, you know, television or, or uh, in and around. And, you know, and I'm every time I go out, I, I, I like the character to be unique, that, that he's not just interchangeable with, with people we've seen before. Uh, and even the look, you know, of Gil, you know. When I read that, you know, Gil's fashion sense stopped with Steve McQueen in Bullet, I said, I know this guy. 
I, I partially am this guy to <laughs> to develop an, an iconic figure right off the bat was was a really exciting uh, undertaking coming off of longmire in 2017 when that wraps and been playing henry out in the great wide open you know i think you guys shot in the southwest right maybe uh, santa fe yeah, yeah. okay so uh, what was what was it like just adjusting from being in that kind of open area to new york concrete jungle you know shooting in the city was there some kind of whiplash there for you like readjusting to what it was like to be in, you know in the city at all uh, you know, <laughs> uh, this, this is so funny because it's such a it's such a personal um, a, a touchstone. My, my wife Yvonne, who's very very much an urban girl, always has been. Uh, uh, she very rarely visited the Santa Fe set because dust and bugs and cactus <laughs> and you know things like that just not just not up her alley. Uh, <laughs> she used to always complain. She goes, "They got you in cowboy boots and flannel all the time. America thinks that's all you wear: cowboy boots and flannel. You know, and that you ride a horse." And she goes, "She." Goes, you're a well-educated man. You read Shakespeare. You know you're a foodie, uh, and and so playing a character like Gilroy, where I get to wear nice clothes and you know hang out in New York City, uh, uh, in, in many ways is a little bit closer to to the real Lou than uh, than Henry Standing Bear is. You know, there's not a bolo tie to be seen. You know, anywhere. You know, exactly. It doesn't, it doesn't exactly. work with the turtleneck. It doesn't go with the turtleneck. No, true. no, it doesn't. Well, yeah, they get gets buried underneath, really. But uh, yeah, no, but it's funny. I did wear bolo uh, bolo ties and, and boots, you know, back 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 in the eighties when uh, you know Santa Fe was all was all the rage. Uh, and and you know, and I had been adopted into the Lakota Nation, and uh, and even for uh, Longmire, I was adopted into the Cheyenne Nation. So that's certainly you know a, a part of my background. It's something that that uh, is close to my heart. But this other side of of who I am, this this urban side, this urbane you know kind of kind of uptown guy is uh is not something that we've seen a lot and so it was uh, a real treat to go all right i'm gonna go shoot in new york city and i'm gonna be in luxury apartments those are our crime scenes that's gonna be great oh, i'm sure your wife was just delighting on that for sure so tonight's episode face value it's your first time directing for prodigal son but it's obviously not your first time directing as you've told us acting itself seems like a time-consuming enough challenge where does the desire come from for you to direct uh you know it's it, it it falls under the category of storyteller uh and i and i go back to the college days uh and even before that you know i was doing high school theater uh and i was writing in high school as well but it's you know when when you learn theater and when you get a theater degree you are taught all of the disciplines you know you, you learn you learn how to paint a backdrop you learn how to build a flat you you know learn how to sew costumes tap dance. I mean, the, the whole nine yards, right? And so much of it, you know, really fed uh, my desire to communicate, to to tell stories. And obviously, as an actor, as an interpreter, that was the, the thing that really, really took off in my career. And certainly was my first love. But I love writing and I love directing. And I love the skill set that comes with them. To, to be able to expand the, the palette and go, I'm not just going to interpret this character. Here's what I want to see in the staging. Here's what I want to help the actors to realize and to, and to be an enabler in that respect. Here is how I can take this story and what, uh, and underline what I feel is important to it. And so, so, um, it's it's using a, a different aspects uh, of the art and of the craft to tell the story in a way that that is a little bit more 
you know, complete. It's a, it's a little bit more thorough than the, the, the kind of tunnel vision you have to have when you're an actor and you're interpreting one character. I, this episode, first of all, it was fantastic. There's just so much depth and layers that are going on with it. It features the start of Catherine Zeta-Jones's character as a series regular, the beginning of Alan Cummings' story arc. You know, you're shooting under COVID protocols. You know, there's a lot going on. So how did you land this episode to direct? Was this something that you handpicked yourself or they the showrunners decided for you for this. Did you know that all this was happening when you took on the the role of director for this episode? Uh, I was the frog being boiled in water. Uh, Seriously? <laughs> yeah, no, I, I I absolutely loved it because I I didn't know I didn't know the heat was getting turned up slowly. I mean, it is about as complex as it gets. Yeah, hundred uh, percent. And what 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 was uh, interesting about it is that we had talked about me directing in the first season. Uh, as I said before, you know, I directed for Charlie Collier, I directed for Peter Roth when I did uh, Longmire, and when I did uh, Fear the Walking Dead. I, I was sort of pre-approved, uh, you know, in the, in those camps, and uh, had a wonderful meeting with Berlanti even before we started filming the first season uh, as a director for some of their other shows, and so I was kind of pre-approved for them. Uh, we decided in the first season. That that, you know, uh, when we got the back nine pickup. And it's funny because I was supposed to have directed a Blue Bloods, but because we got picked up for the back nine, I had to, I had to bow out of that. So we knew it was coming. Uh, we knew that I was going to direct. And as soon as we got picked up uh, for the second season, the boys gave me a call over the summer and go, not only are we excited for the second season, we guarantee that you're going to get a slot as a director. And I didn't really have any say over when that was going to be. And I think it was pretty much predicated by where they could lighten me up in an episode for uh, as far as my demands as an actor so that I could prep. And then also one where I wasn't that uh, a storyline where I wasn't that heavy so that, you know, I, I didn't have to direct myself five out of the seven days. So um, it, it just fell into uh, episode seven and at first i was like great wonderful you know uh that gives me the christmas break i got i got the uh, outline first and then the first draft and was able to uh, ruminate over it over the break and then as things started going on it was like oh well that's going to be the mid-season finale it's like, oh well, cool i've got a very special episode then casting started and literally like a couple of weeks before I was supposed to start shooting, they go, well, we got Catherine Zeta-Jones. And I was like, what? <laughs> Are you freaking kidding me? We, what? I mean, I, I, I really couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe it. And and Sam was so sweet. He goes, well, I'm I'm really glad that we're you know welcoming her to the show in your episode, you know. Uh, and and then I knew that you know it was it was incumbent upon me not only as a director, but as a fellow actor, you know, to, to acclimate her and to make her feel welcome and, to, and to, you know, uh, introduce us to our process and all of that. And then all of a sudden, you know, we got, we got Alan coming, uh, which, you know, I, Ellen and I had met before. And so I was quite excited to work with him as well. And he was absolutely perfect for that role. And in, and in addition, uh, Rachel York, who is a, a, an old friend of mine, I did the national tour of Camelot and was, you know, uh, she had done it with Michael York. And but there was a conflict and she couldn't do it with me. But there was a couple of weeks overlap while I was shadowing that show to take over for uh, uh, Michael York, where she and I got close. And then her husband, uh, uh, Ayala, and I did A Few Good Men in Texas with uh, Jensen Ackles. So it was a small world kind of thing where I was thrilled to be able to bring a friend onto the show as well. So the, the, it was just this embarrassing wealth of riches in this episode that all of a sudden I realized was going to be a massive turning point in, in the season. 
you know, the, the, the halfway point, the midseason finale, and the introduction of two truly iconic characters to this world. I, I, just to go back to Rachel for a second, I don't know that the show could have cast someone better as Bellamy Young's younger sister. It, it, it's just so spot it's sheer on. Perfection. It is sheer perfection. The chemistry is just ridiculous, and it's so much fun. I literally texted uh, Bellamy over the weekend and went, "Watching you and Rachel together just makes me giddy." You know, uh, I mean, it was it was such a joy. And, you know, and that's and that's just it, you know, as, as a director, it, it's really and, and, you know, we get the same sort of in a different sense, the same sort of sparks and fireworks and kind of amazing instant heat between Michael and Catherine, you know. And as a director, uh, you know, sometimes you have to aspire to I don't know if it was Gene Hackman or Morgan Freeman who said this when they were asked, what's your favorite kind of director? And uh, one of them said, the one that stays out of my way. (laughs) (laughs) Sometimes it's like, just just get out of the way and make sure you shoot it well. You know, uh, uh, pay attention to what they're doing. Find the nuance and and make sure those moments are captured uh, uh, and the camera's in the right place to do that. And I would like to think a little bit of design as well. A little bit of, okay, we're supporting this through line, this theme within the show. You know, Wales is not known for its heat, but uh, Catherine and Michael in this episode, the, it's on fire, their chemistry, especially at the end with the butterscotch and she steps over the red line. I was like, I was there for it. Oh, my goodness. She did that first take of that close up and I went, God, I'll, I'll shoot another one because I'm here. But man. <laughs> Uh, that's fantastic. Yeah, I mean, you know, you mentioned it a little bit before about stepping into the show that's got such a deep bench of actors, and you are among that deep bench. I, I don't know how guest stars sometimes come onto the show. We talked to Michael Potts uh, for his uh, two-episode arc a couple weeks ago. We, we talked to him about coming on a show that's got a Lou Diamond Phillips, it's got a Michael Sheen and a Tom Payne, and now it's got a Catherine Zeta-Jones, and it's got Aurora, it's got Halsey, you know, it's, it's and Frank, it, it, everyone is is just a heavy hitter on their own right could carry a show on their own right do you ever stop and think wow you know it's just everywhere you look every dart you, you could throw a dart anywhere into the into the crowd of the cast and you're hitting and i've said it before too and i think it's i think it's very evident in my episode uh you know i mean you know, halston sage man knocks it out of the park but but everybody's had their moments i mean and there's wonderful stuff happening with with aurora and tom you know i mean it's, wherever you throw the ball on our show Somebody's going to score, and it's amazing. And I had one of those moments uh, on the first day with Catherine and with Michael, uh, one of the other uh, actors, who's a very accomplished young actor in his own right, Dennis Flanagan, uh, is sitting there, and I'm getting ready to set up his close-up. I said, uh, so, hey, man, listen, before I, before I actually talk about the scene, I want to I point out one thing. And he, and he looks at me, you know, and he's being a very responsible young actor, and I go, dude, dude. We're standing on set with fucking Catherine Zayden Jones and Michael Sheen. Are you shitting yourself? He grinned and he went, yes. So funny. So funny. This moment's like, we got to recognize, you know. I was recently doing a, a review of Elf, the Christmas movie Elf, and uh, John Favreau tells a story about how he has James Caan in that movie. And, you know, people are always worried about James Caan, especially being in a family-friendly kind of comedy, goofy film. Yeah. He, he walks up to him and he whispers behind into his ear behind a really dramatic scene where James Caan's character has to stand up for his family. And, yeah. uh, and people always ask him, what did you whisper to him to get him ready? He goes, remember your sunny fucking Corleone, you know, and it's just like you have to you have to recognize when you're on stage yeah yeah 
I give no, Dennis 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 Flanagan plays Quentin in tonight's episode. I mean, he's he's sitting between Catherine Zeta Jones and Michael Sheen the entire episode and really holds his own. You know, he's some really funny lines. He you does. Got. No, he's great. Take us behind the scenes a little bit because you're in a unique position as an actor on a show that you're a series regular of and a co-star of. Now you're directing. What does that do to the power dynamic for you? Is it weird at all to go from acting in a scene, say, with Tom Payne, then going behind the camera and and telling him, you know, I need more emotion here. I need you to do the scene a different way. What, What is that like? Is that ever awkward for you? Uh, it's you know it it would be awkward if I were trying to reinvent the wheel the the wonderful I mean and and this is very very true of television no matter what even like when I you know stepped onto the the Agents of Shield or Fear the Walking Dead sets where I was not uh, a member of the cast they know their parts better than than any director could you know so uh, it's it's uh, incumbent upon the director to listen very very carefully to the showrunners and to the writer in the tone meeting and understand what it is they want from the episode because it is very much a part of a whole. It's not an independent film. You know, it is it is a chapter in a much longer novel. You know, you have to understand how that fits in and, and where, where it's been and where it's going. The uh, absolute advantage of being a member of this cast, and it was the same way on Longmire, is that I am intimately uh, uh, aware of everyone's character arc because I've watched every episode. I was there for every episode. I was shooting every episode, fan of the show regardless. And I don't have to be brought up to speed on those relationships. You know, I don't have to be brought up to speed with, you know, their character arcs and their angst and, and, and all of that stuff. Um, and, uh, our, our cast, it's a love fest, man. I know a lot of people say this, but I mean, we, the, the chemistry you see on screen is absolutely real because everybody in this cast loves and respects one another. And so I'm coming from it from that standpoint as a director. I'm not there to fix them. I'm there to help and to enable and to maybe point out a few you know, little things uh, that, that could, would go unnoticed otherwise. You know, I'm not there to hear myself talk. I'm not there to you know, feather my own nest and, you know, make people look at me and, you know, how great I am. Uh, You're there to serve the piece. And by serving the script, uh, you're also serving the actors. And by serving the actors, you're serving the show. Instead of being an aggrandizing uh, uh, position in my, in my book, it's, it's more of a humbling one, you know? Uh, And so, so when we have conversations, when, uh, which aren't always necessary, by the way, uh, it's really more about, yeah, I, I like what you're doing there. Go more in that direction. Or uh, yeah, if you if you think that's you know too much, let's 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 you know pull one back and and uh, try it this way. I I never and I mean, because I, first of all I don't I don't want them turning in uneven performances. I don't want it for myself. You know I I, I never go 180 degrees away from it. it's it's literally about honing uh, what's there because because uh, all of the uh, actors in this in, in this show their instincts are you know are spot on. Uh, it's literally about going oh that's great you know let's I mean like you know Catherine crossing the red line that was literally not in the script. I watched the rehearsal. She approached him, and I realized, oh, she's crossing the red line. I said, okay, Catherine, let's make a let's make more of a deal out of this. I had them both look down at it, had them both mark it, and then shot it so that we saw the foot go across. And all of a sudden, it became this you know crossing the Rubicon kind of moment that was not necessarily there on the page, you know. And that's that's part of the director's job is to pay attention and to see what's happening. You know, between the actors or in the or, or in the, the rehearsals or in their body language or anything else like that. You're really capturing the magic. 
when you get a scene out of like Tom and Halston at the end of the episode, he he gives this really emotional breakdown, and 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 he's not someone who who gets to tears often. His kind of, to Malcolm isn't someone who gets to tears, but he he he's pleading with her. The you know I've given up everything for you. You have no idea, and she's being really stony and icy. Is there a point where you sit back and you realize, wow, what I just caught is something really kind of special? Like you know, this is this is transcending just kind of network television is there ever a moment in this episode or any time that you're directing where you sit back and really take take stock of that no 100 percent, absolutely and uh on the show uh, it was on the daily absolutely on the daily it was it was you know a little bit more to you know to my approach quite honestly i mean i mean first of all look at my cast it looks like i'm directing the freaking you know independent feature you know a prodigal son seriously Uh, And I approached I approached this episode with with uh, uh, feature film sensibilities. My touchstones were Kubrick and Hitchcock, mostly a little bit of Lynch thrown in there, a little bit of Cronenberg, you know. And and so that's why there's no handheld. It's 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 very classically shot. But that scene that you're talking about in particular was one that jumped off the page at me, and I knew exactly how to cover it. Uh, and 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 it's literally just two shots. And people were going, "You're not going to cover the scene." I said, "No, I'm not. I'm not." It starts with a medium and pushes into an extreme close-up on both sides because I want I, – I, I don't need a wide shot. I don't need an insert. I don't need a two-shot. You know, this is about the two of them facing off to each other and everything that's going to happen in between that. And this is where we got to talk about and, and, and have those – nuances in the performance to where we could adjust those and 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 i had a conversation with tom you know because he was ripe and ready to go and and he gave that performance and we did it a few more times and 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 he goes is it too much i said and then we could be because this was that was early on in the schedule then i could go here's how we're going to earn it and i and i told him about every single one of the shots that i had planned where we would see his internal angst throughout the episode to where we could get to that place and we realize and realize that it was roiling within him for the entire episode mm-hmm. until he could finally release it. You know, and I talked about the the, the split screen sequence that I was going to do with him on the phone, how how he's juggling things at the same time, and that was the visual metaphor for the fact that his brain is in two places at once. How we used to split diopter, and he's in focus, and I'm in focus in the background. You know, it's it's all this visual metaphor for the fact that Malcolm is torn the entire episode, and I said. Don't worry. It's not too big. We will earn it by the time we get there. Oh, you absolutely did. And you're 100% right. A two shot would have ruined, I think, the impact a bit of it. You know, the doing the close ups on them, you know, shows them being isolated from each other and really being on their own islands. It's a great, great call. And it was a great, it was the perfect end to a really roller coaster episode. So it was fantastic. Well done. Thank you very much. <laughs> Just pivoting a little bit more towards Gil and where he's at here in season two, where season one spent a lot of time establishing Gil. And, and you even touched on this earlier, which was like a perfect setup that Gil is a Established himself as Malcolm's father figure, who's been there for Malcolm and for Jessica over the last 20 years. But so far in season two, it seems like there's there's cracks in in both of those relationships. So where is Gil's head at these days? Uh, it's it's interesting. It's um, in a weird way. You can you could say he's trying to figure out his place, you know. I mean, he knows he's the head of the major crimes. He, you know, he's, he's, he's the lieutenant. He's the boss. He is the protector of his team. Uh, he is, you know, the mentor to all of them uh, and their backstop. But, you know, how far does that, that, that surrogate father thing go when he knows that he is not? 
you know, when especially when when uh, uh, Martin is is becoming more manip- manipulative and and worming his way back into into you know Malcolm's mind and heart, uh, uh, what's his place to not cross the line and go no. I'm the authority figure here, and we see that a lot. I mean, even to a certain extent, you know, what the, the great episode that the writers just did, where Malcolm in his dream sees Gil as Martin, you know, yeah, uh, yeah, and and where those lines are blurred, uh, you know, his romance with with Jessica, it's always been there. There, there's always been that attraction. Uh, they acted it on in the past. They acted it on it a little bit in the you know the uh, first season. But how appropriate is it? Uh, how complicated, how messy does it make things if, you know, they decide to give in to their uh, attraction for each other, their their very natural chemistry? So I think Gil is, is um, definitely uh, trying to, to walk that tightrope uh, and be what he can for the people that he cares about without, without you know, putting too many demands on them and on himself. And I will also go as far as to say and, and, and having was wonderful as having having had this really intimate working relationship with with Halston there's some stuff coming up where where Gill's got to got to look at his his relationship with Ainsley which i i think is pretty fabulous and it's like wow should i have paid more attention to her too you know it's it's interesting stuff it almost feels like there's a bit of a wall that's gone up and i, I think maybe this is what Sheila said again it's definitely something i'm feeling too season two is because it's this transition period and martin is more and more on the scene and more and more involved in the kids lives and, and maybe re resupplanting a role that you had filled for so many years are we going to continue to see that relationship play out or is it going to be more and more just business between malcolm and and gill which is what i feel like it's been more you know there we haven't had a lot of the personal touches that we had in season one yet so far and i and i think i think you're right because of the distance with martin's reintroduction and what happened with jessica but is that going to continue to play out in the back half of the season you know what gill gill has taken a step back in the first half uh, uh and maybe that was because of the conversation with danny uh so it, it it makes perfect sense but i can guarantee i can guarantee that he's towing that line because he has to uh we have some situations coming up where you know once again Gil realizes he has to go above and beyond and cannot just be the boss or the friend or, you know, he, he, uh, he knows that he's invested in them and that they need him, the Whitleys, uh, at all to a certain extent, you know, that, that connection cannot be severed. There are obstacles in the way, certainly, but there, there's a future there for them. And I think they just have to figure out how, the, how they, they're going to define it. So we've been talking with any of the guests that we've had on about shooting TV in a COVID world and how that experience has been for you managing the quarantine personally, but also shooting the, the show under COVID protocols while trying to maintain the, the natural camaraderie that you have in the teamwork. How has that been for you kind of navigating all of these additional complex layers? You know, think how we had the first season because the bonds were really developed there. Um, you know, the dinners and the times where we could all get together and Chris and Sam and the network and studio are, are so supportive of that. You know, uh, I mean, gosh, last year we had uh, a karaoke night with a lot of the crew and the cast because Bellamy and Michaels and my birthdays are all around the same time, you know. Uh, so so we were able to really, really forge those bonds. And, and, and we're a huggy cast, man. <laughs> I mean, we're an affectionate cast. And it really sucks because we're so used to hugging each other every single day. And that's just not 
part of the protocols, you know, now, but we've all, you know, accepted what we have to do to stay at work and to make this show. You know, I mean, we all get tested three, four times a week. The masks stay on. We stay socially distanced even when we're, you know, off the set in private green rooms or we go straight to our dressing rooms. The masks don't come off until we roll. It obviously takes more time because, you know, uh, when, when we do last looks and whatnot and makeup and hair and wardrobe, you know, they used to just descend on you, you know, like, like you know, the, the fairy godmothers in Cinderella. Uh, but, you know, now, now it's, you know, it's a very processed routine one person comes in at a time and does their thing and then another person and so it adds to the day and as a director you just sit there going tick tock tick tock you know right. make sure everybody's hair is okay it's like oh god you know as the director you're going they look fine please let's go <laughs> you know so so there's that yeah, it's there's, a windy day in new york we're doing windy day today everyone go everyone out everyone out continuity is not that important here <laughs> But, uh, yeah, continuity. So, uh, but uh, it's you know, I mean, we're one of the shows that, that that's you know, knock wood, continuing to to run, whereas others have had to shut down for you know a period of time. Uh, and it's and it's because uh, you know, not only our cast but our crew, man, everybody is disciplined and committed, uh, and and everybody loves this gig. So you know, no nobody's putting it at risk right now. It's so evident that you guys love it, and we're just we're here for it. If I could take you back to last week's episode, uh, Headcase, which was also just phenomenal and just so important to the lore of Prodigal Son, we want to know what it was like for you to ditch the turtleneck and uh, <laughs> for a uh, Claremont cardigan and a crazy beard was and was the hair and the beard was that all you? Uh, the hair is all the hair me. was and all right, you. The, the people on Twitter were like, "No way, that's a wig." It's like, no. You know, uh, uh, Sal Falcone, who does my hair, he's a wonderful, wonderful, uh, our, our head hairdresser. You know, he, he likes to leave it a little, you know, full on top, a little long. And so there's there's a lot more there than, than meets the eye because he kind of tames it down for Gil. Uh, and, you know, he teased the crap out of it and stood it on its end, you know, for, for Gil Whitley. Um, uh, <laughs> the, the, the goatee or Van Dyke or whatever you want to call it that I wear as Gil, that's the only facial hair I can get. <laughs> you know, I a full beard. so they had to do they had to do beard pieces on me, uh, which is hilarious. I mean, when and when I when I did uh, the thirty three, uh, Antonio Banderas was going to have the goatee because uh, Mario Sepulveda did, and so they would lay a hand laid beard on me every single day because I can't grow one, you know. <laughs> but but uh, Christina Hugis, uh, our, our makeup person, I mean, uh, and and Fiona, they had the, these beard pieces made to match Michael's beard, uh, and interestingly enough, they integrate well into mine. But yeah, man, we put we put those on for the day, and the, and the transformation was a little frightening, I gotta say. I personally cheered when you turned around in that episode as as Martin as a uh, Martin Arroyo. <laughs> yeah, Martin Arroyo or Gil Whitney, one of the two. Yeah. So funny! It was so funny. What a great episode that was! And just again, you know, it was an, it was a nice reinforcement of the role that Gil plays in Malcolm's life, even in this parallel inside his head world that he has. You're still the one who grounds him. Isn't that interesting? Some people pointed that out uh, that it's in the cell looking at Gil that he goes. I'm still there. Right. Yeah. And that's when he gets the realization. You know, it was Gil who helped him get there. 
Yeah, I mean, I think it just reinforces there. There's so much of the subconscious in that episode that reveals so much truth. Like there's a there's a line in this episode tonight with Malcolm and Danny about, you know, even if you're as beautiful as you are and Danny just stops in her tracks and Malcolm barely even registers what he said out loud, which picks up so nicely from last week, which is revealed in his subconscious how he feels about her. But your relationship or Gil's relationship to Malcolm and how he is this reliable bedrock of truth and being there and groundedness you know i think is well represented in that psyche you know everyone's trying to construct this world and keep him happy in his his fake world and you have martin garroyo you know gil whitley bringing the truth in his crazy beard you know so it's great yeah we still have a couple more like fun questions about the show but before we ran out of time and you've been so generous with your time i wanted to actually take a left turn and talk about you having one of the most productive pandemics i've seen uh (laughs) you you wrote a book lou you you wrote a book tell us about the tinderbox soldier of indira it came out last october tell us what's about what inspired you to go and write a book during this time tell us all about it it's a long journey actually uh my, my wife yvonne is an amazing illustrator and when we first started dating it was 15 16 years ago now you know as as you do you trot out your stuff that people don't know about you and so she's reading a lot of my writing and i'm looking at a lot of her artwork and she had done these amazing manga illustrations because she was uh developing a graphic novel inspired by hans christian anderson's tinderbox Oh, and cool. it was like, oh, cool. Wow. Yeah. And, and, and she purposely chose that one because it was, it's a little bit more obscure. People aren't as familiar with it. And I looked at her drawings and I went, man, this is – and because they were in the manga style, I said, this is like a Kurosawa. This is like getting back to the Star Wars inspiration because this is feudal kind of kings and queens and princesses. And I said, this would make a great movie. So fine. I set about writing the screenplay with her blessing and her input. And when I finished writing the screenplay, we kind of looked at each other and went, holy shit, this is so expensive. Nobody's going to give us the money. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so, so it's like I talked to my manager about it. He loved the screenplay. He goes, well, well, listen, you know, you've talked about this before. Why don't you adapt the novel? And I was like, got it done. So it takes 10 years, you know, it Whoa. takes 10 years. Yeah. And then it, it finally it sells through a couple of different drafts. And then the pandemic happens in, in the, the rug is pulled out from under us in March of last year. And now all of a sudden it's like I've got all day to work on the edits and the final notes and another pass and a polish on the book that, you know, I've been writing sporadically for 10 years because my day job kept getting in the way, you know? So, um, yeah, I I was able to hunker down and, and during the pandemic and just write and, and really, uh, takes six months to fine tune the book and Yvonne, you know, who homeschools our our daughter Indigo anyway, she was able to do 30 illustrations for the hardcover version of it. So, uh, absolutely thrilled. The response was amazing. Uh, it shot to the top of some of the Amazon charts, the hardcover sold better than the publisher anticipated. So they had to go into a second printing of that. And the, uh, uh, the audio book done by RC Bray, who did the Martian and Julia Whelan was so well received too. And the reviews were so good. People loved this world so much that I'm already working on the sequel. I'm about 140 pages into the sequel. And once again, it was Yvonne's idea. I had a certain jumping off place uh, because we thought about this over the 10 years. She came up with a storyline out of left field that was so amazing that it was like, that's it. 
that's it. And uh, I literally did some writing this past weekend. So you'll, you know, sometimes on set you'll see me with a uh, a yellow pad and I'm jotting down ideas or you know dialogue or you know uh, paragraphs even that I transfer to the computer when I get home. Or I will sometimes if I've got big chunks, uh, I'll, I'll bring the computer with me to the dressing room. I've taught my cat how to fetch soda for me from the fridge during the pandemic. So I feel a little inadequate that you finished a book <laughs> during that time and, and were able to well, work my with your wife. Get me soda, so you got one up on me. <laughs> I have uh, to say, like, I made bread. I did, like, all the things that you're supposed to do during pandemic. Write a book was not one of them. So congrats. How was it, though, working with Yvonne now, now it trapped together or not trapped, but quarantined together now during this last year and, and putting the finishing touches on it? Did that change the working relationship that had been kind of cordial you know together what, what, what was was the forced time together did that ever get a little hairy oh uh, a little <laughs> i mean here's, here's the thing uh, i mean oh, wait, wait wait one second avon turn this off you don't have to listen to this next like three four minutes <laughs> no man her, her wheelhouse of illustration and, and by the way she's expanding and doing so many more interesting things uh, and you can see her on Instagram, uh, YV Phil, I believe is where she's at, you know, Yvonne Phillips. We'll put a link to her in their show notes for this too. Yeah, she's been putting up uh, some great, great art that she's been doing lately. But uh, her real wheelhouse was this German woodcut style. You know, the kind of thing that you would have seen in the Tennille illustrations of, you know, Alice in Wonderland or the Charles Veth's illustrations of Stardust or even the original illustrations of the Hans Christian Andersen. That's really what she grew up doing. And now all of a sudden, you know, because we decided to, to do the novel in, in kind of a back backdoor way, she's reading what I'm writing and she's yelling at me. She goes, I don't draw sci-fi. I don't draw spaceships. I don't make up creatures. <laughs> like, honey, honey, you, you don't have to. I'm not forcing you to. She goes, yes, but you're writing it in the end. The reader's going to want to see it. Now I have to do it. <laughs> and so, you know, I mean, David Bowie actually saved our lives. David Bowie. Uh, we were watching an interview with Bowie and, and he said, you know, you, you, you wander into the water and you got to get to that place where your feet don't feel the bottom and you have to be brave enough to go there because that's, you know, that's what's going to gonna uh, inspire you to do something different and better and brave. And, you know, and she went, OK, all right, OK, I'll try it. <laughs> you know, And it was it was because Bowie told her, not me, man, you know. Uh, but I have so to funny. say, what, what what she's the book itself is such a great hybrid of fantasy, sci-fi, you know, old old fairy tale kind of sensibilities, a, a real kind of retro steampunk feel to it, and then it's also YA because it's a Romeo and Juliet story. And Yvonne's illustrations are very much like that. There's there's definite graphic novel influence. There's you know that uh, she she says you know this is more Barbarella than it is you know Blade Runner, uh, which is true. It's great. There's this great sort of you know Flash Gordon feel to some of the stuff, and 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 yet still retains that pen and ink uh, woodcuts kind of feel. So it, it's it's a it's a beautiful hybrid of all things, and uh, you know it's uh, like I said, the feedback has just been beautiful. And the artwork is just so striking. It's so stunning. So kudos to both of you for, for making that happen in just the most extraordinary of circumstances. We are fans of your career and the length of your career. La Bamba remains an important film today. Uh, and I actually watched it last night just because like, I was getting ready for this. I was like, you know what? I, I just feel the nostalgia. 
nostalgia for this movie. I want to watch it. It holds right. up so beautifully. Isn't that crazy? It is. It, it, it's not one of your sort of – well, first of all, it's a period piece itself, but it's not your typical kind of, you know, 80s, you know, uh, iconic film. It's, right. It's not like a John Hughes, you know, like that kind of niche. Yeah. So I just wanted to ask, how has that role influenced your career? Well, I mean, first of all, it gave me a career, you know, which is why I will never, ever uh, resent talking about La Bamba or, you know, people bringing it up or whatever. And and it is – and it's evergreen. I mean, you know, Netflix just put it uh, into rotation what uh, last fall after 30 years and and you know a whole new generation is discovering it so you know i got eight-year-olds screaming Reggie! at me yeah. you know? <laughs> but uh, um, in part of the bigger picture it is a constant reminder to me between this one and stand and deliver you know and even young as those were my first three films in hollywood was this dawning realization that I was representing an underrepresented community or communities in Hollywood because I was, you know, I was suddenly the brown guy of the moment. You know, I thought, wow, I, I'm putting a face up there that uh, isn't often seen. And here are some great roles that are, you know, help, helping us to represent. And I'm, you know, I'm doing it with, you know, people like Luis Valdez, who came out of the, you know, the farm workers union, you know, or, or Eddie Olmos, you know, who was also, you know, a, uh, very intimate with with Luis uh, through Zoot Suit, and and I'm and I'm working with these people who are socially um, motivated as well, who are activists as well as actors. And you know, I, I marched with Cesar Chavez in the late '80s. I worked with El Rescate. I, I I worked with Amnesty International. Just you know, there's there was a whole generation of us that was uh, very very socially aware, and these films were part and parcel of that. The art was an extension of the statements we were making in pop culture. Uh, and, and that was about representation. And the fact that we're still talking about it 30 years later and that I realized that I became a standard bearer for this years and years and years ago, uh, I've embraced it more than ever. You know, even even, you know, looking at something like Longmire, where I was able to, to bring so many different, you know, Native American uh, uh, or First Nations actors in. Graham Greene was my suggestion. Julia Jones was my suggestion. Tantu Cardinal. Gary Farmer, whenever they had a great role to cast, they'd call me up and go, Lou, who do you know? Which was right. a, a great honor. And so I was able to be a conduit there. But even in Prodigal Son, where my team, my team looks like New York City. Oh, right? 100%. You know, and yeah, and then, you know, you got, you know, Frank and Aurora and myself, we're all mixed blood actors. We have mixed heritage, you know, and, and I think it's, that is representative, you know, of who we are in this country today, too. When I think back on those early films, not realizing the responsibility they were handing me. Thank goodness, you know, I mean, ignorance is sometimes bliss. I just right. went about my business, you know, representing myself. And only, you know, after a while did I realize it was also my responsibility to keep my foot in the door for the people behind me uh, and continue to do that on a very bra brass tacks, you know, bottom line kind of thing. I mean, for instance, Manu, who we cast in this as, as the other uh, plastic surgeon, that role was written white. And we flipped it. So we, we flipped it. We flipped it in casting. It's going, you know what? Let's open this up. Let's, you know, let's make sure that, that you know, we, uh, uh, we, we look at all the actors for this. Uh, the same thing with, with some of the other day player roles. It's like, you know what? Bring me, bring me someone of color here, please. So, uh, and Mark Sachs, our, our casting director, is incredibly, incredibly good at that. And our producers are very, very cognizant of that. I remember even as, uh, as a kid watching Stand to Deliver, 
and thinking to myself, watching, you know, Edward James Olmos in, in that role and thinking like, this is an important film. And, and I didn't fully understand why, but I remember thinking this, this movie is important to adults. And that always kind of stuck with me. And then watching it again as, you know, as a teenager and a young adult and then watching it again in my thirties and now in my forties, it, you know, it's one of those movies that, that stands out and has something important to say that still resonates, you know, through the decades. We, we talked to Frank Hartz a couple of weeks ago about representation and about telling stories that are affecting us in the real world and bringing them into the show. And and some people don't like that. And there are fans out there that say, you know, I don't want the real world in my television. But, you know, Frank had a great point that you can't turn a blind eye and it's important to show representation issues and, and show, you know, talk about things like, you know, over-policing and in the BLM movement. Is that important to you on a conscious level? Or are you actively thinking about that? And you already talked about about the responsibility you feel just talk to us a little bit about getting those storylines about what the jt character goes through and the way you stand next to him and, and you don't try and talk him down you know you're, you're just trying to be there as a human and as a friend to him in, in the episodes absolutely i mean we have this conversation on set all the time uh because if, if, every, everybody in this show is very politically aware and, and politically active yeah, even more so because we had to be in 2016, you know, after Election Day, I thought, oh, my gosh, I took so much for granted. We got complacent. We, we thought that, you know, we're, all, we're on a straight road here and we're all good. We can take our hands off the wheel. And, and I think we all realized that, we, that you know, you, you cannot just let things go. You know, you cannot you, – you, you, have, you have to take a stand somewhere. You have to stand up for something. And uh, we have this conversation on set. You, we can't get away from our faces. You know what I'm saying? And I think we've all dealt with passive racism, you know, in the industry for a long time, you know, where it's like, oh, hey, this is a great role. Can I can I be up for this? It's like, yeah, we're not going that way. It's like, oh, I get it. OK, yeah, gotcha. You know what I mean? Uh, uh, there, there are so, so many, so many examples. When you're on a show like this and uh, especially I mean, and it's a cop procedural and Cops were making headlines all through last year, and you know, and it's like, okay, we we cannot ignore this. Uh, it's it's a show that yes pushes the envelope. Yes, it's a little far fetched, but it, it it purports to live in the world, and so you have to sort of deal with the world as much as possible. I mean, we talk about the pandemic, but you know, we're not all wearing masks. You know, but but, but this one, and especially given the makeup of our cast. It was unavoidable. I mean, we, we we had to go there. We just had to go there. You know, like Aurora and Frank said, there there are people of color playing cops on TV. It would it would be irresponsible to not address it in some form or another. And I think that the writers uh, and and the fact that they talked to Frank and they talked to Aurora about this, they dealt with it. Uh, I, I think in, in in an incredibly good way because, like you said, nobody wants to get hit over the head uh, with speeches and things like that. But you know, once again, I learned I learned years ago, man. You want to change somebody's mind? You know, first of all, walk the walk. You know, don't just mm -hmm. talk the talk. You know, lead by example. And instead of you know yelling at people and waving your fist and then being pedantic about it, it's like here, let me show you, let me show you what the alternative is. Let us do this. <laughs> it's a little more insidious, right. but you know, I mean, it's 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 another. It's why I recently did. Uh, uh, you know, we're all fruit salad with the Wiggles. Why? 
because I'm teaching five-year-olds, we're all fruit salads, and the bananas are as important as the apples are as important as the kiwis, you know, and the cherries, and all the stuff that doesn't look like it should go together. Well, it goes together, and it's delicious. I saw that episode of The Wiggles, and that was fantastic. You are amazing. <laughs> and she doesn't even have kids, Lou. She's just a fan of The Wiggles. It's really disturbing, actually. <laughs> I lived in Australia, so, you know, they hold a very special place in my heart. Second only to ACDC, as far as imports go. <laughs> Really funny. It's really funny. I heard you do a pretty mean Australian accent anyway. Ah, well, I've been there to the last, you know, every once in a while you got to drop down there, flat out like a lizard drinking and just, you know, sort of go with it. Nah, yeah, it's, uh, you know, you sometimes give into your cockney. But, you know, I, I worked with Robert Taylor on, on Longmire for a long Yes, time. you did. <laughs> and he was, uh, you know, he'd get really pissed off at me whenever I started talking like this. Between the text. Stop! Stop it! Oh, my God. That's fantastic. That's fantastic. I was I was not even prepared for this. I, I've lost my, my place in my notes. I don't even know where to go now. Uh, Lou, you have been so fantastic. I can't wait to have you back on again. Thank you so much. And come back on for the show. We still have a bunch of episodes left in the season. And, and we want to come back on for when uh, the sequel to The Tinderbox comes out. And we'll Excellent. come talk to you about that. Where can people find you on Twitter, on social media, if they want to follow you and interact? I am on Twitter uh, at Lou D. Phillips, Loud phillips uh look for the blue check i am not on any other uh social media i'm not on instagram although some people pose as me on occasion so yeah i, I am only on twitter and people have often asked it uh, uh that is me i respond to those tweets those are my bad jokes uh those are certainly my cat pictures or yvonne's cat pictures that she takes of me and the cats you know so so yeah the, that is that is a direct pipeline to me don't get Sheila started with you in the cat pictures. She's mildly obsessed with them, and I have to hear nice. about it all the time. Yeah, my cat has yeah. tail envy. <laughs> I had to tuck her down from asking three questions about the cat's tail regiment that you keep it to make them so fluffy. That's what you see is what you get. They uh, and, be- and believe me, it goes straight up my nose. Uh, there, there, there's some <laughs> pictures of me. Uh, yeah, the, a couple of Zoom meetings, like uh, the production meetings, uh, the cats had to be a part of. Uh, and uh, there's some pictures of me when I'm actually trying to write. T- box with the, like Boba, you know, like deciding that the keyboard uh, was where he needed the nap. So funny, so funny. <laughs> uh, Lou, thank you so much for coming on. You've spent uh, like God, almost uh, an hour with us. We really appreciate you taking us deep behind not only this episode uh, that you directed, but just the Gill and your career and, and talking with us. It's been fantastic to have you. Thanks so much. Mike and Sheila, thank you so much for the time. What a wonderful conversation. It was great. We talk about in the interview how this episode is a roller coaster of, of emotion for for Malcolm, and it, that was a roller coaster of emotion of an interview. I mean, we mm. had some really serious parts, we had some really fun parts. Uh, Lou took us all over the place, and it was just fascinating to to get to speak with him. No, the fact that he was able to just spend so much time with us and just really just open up and be so gracious and and just giving of his time to share his experience on the show how he got the show it's the hearkening back to like my love of labamba like way back in the day it just really made my day and the fact that he was able to just share with us where the characters are going where he thinks the characters are going that yeah it's just a treat it's just a treat to get an insight into such a, a deep and intellectual show the one thing we talked about in the interview was this role that Gil fills in Malcolm's life. And we saw this in the Headcase episode, where even when Malcolm's subconscious is lying to him and constructing this fake world, Gil is still this bedrock of truth for Malcolm, for good or for bad, depending on whether or not you want to be woken from your fantastic fake world dream or not. 
Gil is this stalwart of truth and honesty and how things really are for Malcolm. In this episode, Gil doesn't have a ton of, a ton to do, which makes sense because, you know, Lou, Lou Diamond Phillips was also directing. And so it would make sense that he would have a lighter Gil episode. But he is the one who says explicitly to Malcolm about monsters hiding in plain sight. And that is something that resonates not only for Malcolm with respect to the case, and it is part of the profile that eventually leads him to Summer, uh, a.k.a. Lana, but also hits home i think with him personally again himself seeing himself as a monster in the mirror but also thinking about and worrying about his sister who is just out and about in the world as if nothing bad has happened and yet she has all of this literal blood on her hands um so again it was just a nice continuation of gill's role that he fills in malcolm's world always kind of bringing him back to center in a way and keeping him grounded in, in a way that a lot of the other people in his life don't you know danny does but none of his you know, his family doesn't, you know, Jessica and Ainsley and Martin, they keep him so off kilter and so amped up and so anxiety ridden all the time. Gil is always this force that can kind of bring him back down and keep him on, keep his feet on the ground. So uh, it was just a nice continuation hearing that one line that Gil really had in this episode. Uh, and then after talking to Lou and thinking about it and man, even in this episode where Gil doesn't have a lot to do, we got to see that. I want to turn to Jessica though. She, before we go to Adrisa's corner and then wrap this up. The development at the end of this episode is Jessica is going to write the memoir that she didn't want Birdie to write because her idea is that at least she could control the narrative if she writes it herself. Mm-hmm. How do you think that Jessica writing this tell-all memoir affects everyone else's life? Oh, it's not going to be pretty. It just seems so messy and just what the audience and what the, the consumers will definitely want because of this... this um this devour culture for all things murder and serial killer and um martin whitley seems to have this larger than life profile uh as a serial killer in this fictitious world so writing a tell-all book is going to be bad for malcolm's health it's going to be bad for ainsley for whatever secrets that she did or didn't know growing up it's just it's not going to be good i know jessica's going to try to paint it in a good light but you know the spin doctors and what they're going to do so i just don't see this being a good thing for anybody except birdie's pocketbook Oh, yeah, she's going to get to keep the advance royalties. You know, mm-hmm. I was reminded of, I agree with you, it's going to end poorly for everyone. And, and Jessica not realizing the circles of destruction that just will come, that will wave out of this epicenter. But it felt to me a little bit like this was season two's version of Jessica going on TV without telling anyone and offering a million dollars for information leading to the girl in the box, Martin's final, final unaccounted for victim, which also was from the winter finale in season one. That was in the silent night episode where she gets on the stairs and she, she, she sets the world aflame and, and really fucks it up for everyone by doing that in in a way that rippled for a couple of episodes. I mean, it leads to the carousel kill a little later on and, yeah, it was like just poorly thought out and very flashy and yeah, just bad repercussions. So I th- I think that's a really great corollary. So I'm interesting to see if this is going to actually play out the same way because then it becomes a nice little niche, right? Once was once and twice starts to confirm a pattern. We go into these winter finales and you have Jessica deciding to do something impulsively that is going to have negative repercussions, especially with Ainsley now where she is now in possession of this knowledge about Endicott. Perhaps 
perhaps being a uh, uh, on the ledge of becoming a full-blown psychopathic serial killer. Malcolm in the midst of a breakdown because of what he's been through for his sister. And then you have Martin and Dr. Capshaw. I mean, this is the worst time for Jessica to be doing a fucking tell-all book about her life. But she doesn't think like that, though. She thinks... I do this book and then that gets birdie off my case and I get to control the story. No, this is going to be a, an 8.5 earthquake with, with aftershocks that go for days and days and days. Right. A tsunami that follows for sure. Yeah. It was just a nice symmetry that this is also, you know, coming into the winter finale like last year. Look at you doing your homework. Very good. Very astute, Mr. Caputo. Uh, thank you. Thank you. All right. Let's, <laughs> let's wrap this up with Adresa's corner. I have a troubling worry about Adresa. Last few times that we've seen Adresa, she is, kind of increasingly acting not like herself. She really going back to the episode where she meets Martin and she ends up having phone conversations with him and he's listening in on the line and, and, and talking about her, um, her friend marrying her high school boyfriend and in the Galapagos and she, you know, has seen turtles before all of that. And then she has the, uh, the four loco episode. She is increasingly unstable and and to a point where it's it's less funny than it used to be because it seems so unhinged it's not just shy adresa or socially awkward around malcolm adresa anymore it is blatant love stricken adresa to the point where she puts on this like high-end night outfit as if they were going to some kind of gala ball Mm -hmm. just to meet him in the morgue I am starting to, and, and then when he asks her for the DNA analysis and then walks away and then she kind of looks and she has like a really weird look on her face and then she smiles to herself and she says that went well. I'm starting to get a real worry that Odrisa is going to become either a, a, a single white female or a fatal attraction like femme fatale or a full blown killer herself. I feel like we're painting a Riddler, if you're familiar with the DC Comics villain Riddler, uh, Edward Enigma, who is a super genius who eventually becomes uh, this Riddler-telling killer. I feel like we're going down a dark path with Adresa. Lou says in the interview how he became a director, where he was like a, a frog slowly being boiled, so he didn't realize. I feel like the audience is being slowly boiled with Adresa and not really picking up on the signs. Adresa is in a bad place and increasingly so tonight's episode was troubling to me. I did not find it cute that she put on that outfit to meet Malcolm. That is not behavior we have seen with Adresa before. I found it very troubling. I did not find it amusing. I'm worried about Adresa. I am worried about Malcolm's safety. Again, another woman in Malcolm's life when I'm now worried about his safety. I think the back end of season two sets up an Adresa storyline that no one is going to be happy with if she if she if she goes full fatal attraction, kill your bunny Glenn Close here. You know, you pointed out something two episodes ago where she missed the the heterochromia iridium with the eyeball, right? And you you pointed that out and and you really drove home the point that this is very unadresa-like behavior. I think you're touching upon a lot. You're connecting a lot of dots that I didn't even put together. So that is a very plausible theory because we talked about how like unhinged she seemed when she was talking about the boyfriend and the Galapagos and and all of that. But if you're stringing all these these clues together, that is very troubling because that sounds very plausible. And somebody who's maybe a little emotionally isolated as Teresa tends to be uh, may not be able to deal with some of the 
the feelings and the repercussions of what she's dealing with. So that's a very interesting, a very interesting theory. I'm also upset at Malcolm with how he treated Idrissa this episode. How so? I don't like the fact that he used her infatuation with him to run down the lead on his own with the, the DNA from Ainsley's shirt and giving her no information about it. Obviously, he can't. And using that information, knowing that she's not going to ask because she is so infatuated with him, it it just did not sit well with me. I don't like the fact that he used this time with Idrissa to, to exact what he needed from her with no payoff for Idrissa. Um, seeing her in the gala dress and the, the, the expensive boots and the rose petals on the table. I mean, I don't know what she thought was going to happen on that cadaver table, but it was the most ick factor feeling I've had in the show, I think, ever. Because he knows how she feels about him. Uh, I got to tell you, my heart my heart did break for her when she was like, it was just something I had in the back of my locker. And then you see the tag. The tag like, and yeah. it, it was so sad. And again, I didn't find it cute. Like, I usually, I, I like Adresa for the social awkwardness and, and the uh, two into murder you know, crime set. I think that's where she's always been. And and not to say that I don't like whether they're going with the character. I, I'm all about her getting more time and getting to know her and, and seeing the character unravel, but it's going to affect me emotionally. This is someone who I care about as a character because mm-hmm. she's so loving and transparent and not assuming, and she doesn't put up walls and she doesn't put on airs. Everything Adresa is thinking and feeling, you see it with her. So if she is going to go to break back and or be hurt or manipulated in some kind of way, all of that is going to hit me in a very, very emotional way because I'm invested in this character's happiness and being a source of light and joy in the world. I don't want to see bad things happen to her or see her do bad things. I, you know, so I'm conflicted because I'm fascinated by it that I think it'll be, I think the show will handle it in a way that'll be fascinating to watch and very interesting to see it happen. And I think Keiko again is an amazing actress that can pull it off. But also I am so invested in uh, Dresa Tanaka being this source of light and joy and humor in a show that deals with very dark subjects. Who do we have? I mean, we're going to have to rely on Martin solely for the joy and happiness and fun. The guy is a serial killer. And I have to rely on him as the source of joy in the in the show. That's, that's if he gets tough. a little happier, you don't know. He might, you know, he might be even quippier. No one's gonna replace Adresa. You, no. you can't come up with Botox to death if you if you turn to a homicidal or stalker femme fatale kind of thing. Anyway, I, I just want to put it out there. This is something I'm gonna be worrying about for the next couple of weeks until the show comes back. I am worried about Adresa. I did like the fact that we unlocked a new skill, right? This is always part of our Adresa corner. She mm-hmm. can read upside down she could read text messages on a glowing screen upside down which is creepy but also uh, good Maybe to know useful if you're investigating things sure good to know good to know also makes you think how many things have people texted in front of her over the years that she has known exactly what they're talking about and has been able to read it so mm. anyway guys that's gonna do it for another episode of the searches files your unofficially official prodigal son podcast i hope you guys weather the winter finale and the hiatus here for the next month well i hope you go back and revisit our episodes of uh that we've done so far here in season two listen to our interviews with the creators with frank hartz with keiko with michael potts with halston sage tonight's episode with lou diamond phillips i mean there's some great content there to to fill your voids while you're waiting for new episodes of prodigal son to drop in april but i just want to say thank you 
guys so much for listening. Thanks so much. We really appreciate it. Make sure you head over to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and please leave us a five-star review. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. It helps us tremendously get visibility for the podcast and it also keeps us from wanting butterscotch in the middle of the night, which is something that, you know, sometimes we want if we don't get good reviews. So do your part, help us out, and uh, we love uh, making a podcast and we hope you guys enjoy listening to it. Thanks so much for listening. Thank you for listening. This has been an original Pod Clubhouse production. Pod Clubhouse is a podcast network dedicated to encouraging collaboration among podcasters and friends to bring a fresh voice and diverse perspective on a wide array of content. Please visit and leave a comment for us at podclubhouse.com. Rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast feeds on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can find us at Pod Clubhouse. Our DMs are always open, and we'd love to hear from you.